Welcome to episode two of Disruption Theory. My name is SK, and today we sit down with one of my good friends, Mason, who is an economist. And today's episode is almost split into two parts, where in the beginning, we get a little bit more into politics. We discuss things like how China is enforcing their dystopian view of the world onto the West. Uh, We discuss how maybe we can fight back against that. Trump's unpredictability and analyze his decision-making process from a game-theoretical perspective. We discuss how American cities and suburbs could be designed a little bit better. And the second part is actually my favorite because it's a bit more personal, but essentially I revisit my intellectual growth for the past 10 years. And I share views that I've once held onto that I've actually backpedaled and switched my view 180. Also keep in mind, there is a video podcast that you can actually watch on the YouTube channel, link below. Hope you enjoy. Like being a new parent makes me think back of my childhood mm-hmm. and the things I liked, the things that worked, the things that didn't. Yeah. And I, I keep thinking back to high school literature. Mm. I hated it. I don't think I read, I read maybe one book mm. throughout my entire high school. You swear to fan. I yeah. just copied everybody and, you know, had people do my, you know. Yeah, I mean, plenty, yeah, short I saw plenty of people do that kind of stuff too. I don't yeah. want to read Shakespeare. And I think part of the reason is they shoved it down your throat at an age when you weren't ready for it. Not everybody was ready for it. I think yeah. the minority of people were like ready to, 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 to appreciate, to absorb yeah. the greatest literature. If anything, I want to take the classics and I want to take my, I want to tell my son or my kids like, nah, you can't, you're not old enough for this. Mm-hmm. It's like the forbidden fruit approach, right? Like yeah. you can't read this. Like you're not old enough to handle it. You're not going to appreciate it. Just to yeah. make more like, yo, what is, yeah. what's in that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in a way, man, it holds true, right? Like It is, yeah. Some things are too precious. And, you know, there is a quote, you can't experience a poem twice or something. Uh-huh. Like, something along the lines, if you only experience it that first time. Yeah, that first read. And mm-hmm. um, I just reread um, 1984, 1984 for the first time since like high school. And back then, I don't think I even read it all the way, but completely different interpretation this time around, right? Because like. Yep. I want to read it for myself. I'm not, I don't have to answer questions. I'm not. Yeah, there's not an exam, an essay. And even like the way it's taught in schools is it's essentially guided reading too. Yeah. So you're kind of taught how to think about a book as well. I think in a lot of cases when, uh, you know, if you just pick it up yourself, you go with open mind, you know, it's definitely a different experience. That book was one that had a lot of impact on me. Mm. Well, in a non-expected way. Mm. So I remember reading it and like, I'm sure people listening by now, everybody knows about the, the plot basically, which yeah. is a dystopian society. The government is the big brother. They're observing everything, reading your thoughts. And I remember having this distinct feeling of finishing the book mm. and then thinking like, yo, this guy was so far off. Society in the <laughs> U.S. is like so much different. But then there was this like sudden realization like, oh shit, he just described China. Yeah. And I realized yeah. like his vision came true in the, the other part of the world. Yeah. And that really, in tandem with the conversations we've had on China, that really altered my like political take on China and like the the future. It's it's almost like an ideological battle now, West yeah. versus the East. And um, there was another documentary recently on, uh, it wasn't Vox, it was Vice or something. Vice, where yeah. they send this uh, female reporter to show you the face. Right. Have you seen this one? No, I don't think I've seen this one. Crazy, man. Crazy. Uh, Facial recognition, just no privacy. And like, this is a world power trying to impose that view on the rest of us, man. It's it's really interesting. That's a topic you brought up because, you know, before coming today, you said, you know, kind of just play around with something that some some way your views very much changed over the last decade, right? 
So that kind of just took me took me back to my own intellectual growth over the last decade. And I studied global affairs in college, right? So I studied all about, you know, how the world is becoming a more integrated place. And I studied that because early on, you know, my mom, she could give me books like The Lexus and the Olive Tree or um, what other books by him? The World is Flat. There's a couple of books by this uh, New York Times journalist, Thomas Friedman, which are about how we're kind of going towards a more integrated world, right? Mm-hmm. How we're gonna be, and he wasn't wrong, but the way that he made history seem like it was unfolding was that we were gonna reach a world where everywhere would be a liberal democracy. You know, every country would, you know, once market forces took hold, they'd become increasingly integrated, get similar value systems. There's another book I read in college by a guy named uh, Francis Fukuyama called The End of History, where he said that, you know, after the Soviet Union fell and liberal democracy kind of, you know, capitalistic liberal democracy triumphed over communism, that we are reaching towards like an end of history and every country would adopt a similar system. Mm-hmm. And we kind of all live in a peace that was, you know, underlied by trade and constant economic growth, et cetera. Well, so what, I, what year was that written in? That was sometime in the 90s. I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact year, but uh, Fukuyama, was, it was soon after the Soviet Union fell. There was like a very big push in like the you know, academia surrounding international relations that we're reaching this like end of history and there's this triumph of this this one system that's going to spread to every country in the world. And that's going to kind of undergird, you know, because there's this whole idea that, you know, once two countries are liberal democracies, they don't go to war with each other anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I think they call it the McDonald's uh, theory of international relations. Oh, yeah. Any two countries that have McDonald's won't go to war with each other. That's crazy. Right? I like that heuristic. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. a funny way to think about it. Yeah. But yeah. that was kind of like the paradigm. I'm sure you probably, you know, grew up with it too, where it's like, you know, the world is becoming a more open, connected place. And I very much believed in that idea, especially in high school. You know, I was like, oh, I want to say international relations and contribute to this process of globalization, you know, keep bring, breaking down barriers. And I think... You know, what you were just saying about China is that um, there's a seismic shift that in my own thinking and maybe also in the world, is fun- the way the world is functioning, uh, where we're starting to see that that kind of dream of this, you know, <clears throat> world united by these similar values and similar types of societies is just not really materializing in the mm-hmm. way we thought it would. You know, we have uh, in China a power that's rising, like you said, is like an Orwellian nightmare, you know, where you have people who have uh, systems of social control that basically keep a knife knife at your throat constantly and make you, you know, intrude into your life to an extent where you're uncomfortable or, you know, in reality, unable to question the, you know, the state in any vocal way. You got to keep any, uh, any, uh, what's the right word? Like disagreements or misgivings in your head. Yeah. Right. And, uh, that's, you know, sounds like a horrifying society. So, you know, China, when we first opened up trade with them in the 1970s, when, when Nixon was president, you know, he had a secretary of state, uh, Kissinger, kind of uh, lead it. And the thinking was that if you start trading with the society, then it's going to, you know, eventually as its market grows, it's going to ultimately democratize. So by around now, they're expecting that China was going to become a big democracy like the United States, you know, if right. it adopted free market principles. But now we've seen a country that has adopted free market principles, and that part's worked out beautifully. Right. There's been a huge windfall for the rest of the world because of that. But they've managed to do that without giving up, creating any kind of political democratization. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so they're right now building a parallel system that's repressive to its own people internally, but also you know, evidence is starting to show they're probably trying to even export those kind of repressive policies to other mm-hmm. countries and build a, a parallel global system to our own while still benefiting from that market system that, uh, you know, was supposed to be what would ultimately break, you know, break that kind of dictatorship, essentially. Yeah, this, this is what worries me, that mm-hmm. China's essentially copied the blueprint from, 
from the West when it comes to wealth creation, mm-hmm. right? They've had this phenomenal, like exponential growth, um, but they're not they're not using it in the same in the same sense, right? Yeah, um, they have this strategic advantage where like it's it's asymmetrical to the West because it's essentially like the worst of both worlds. Mm-hmm. They have the the wealth. Of a free market with the ideology of like a dictatorship yeah. where totalitarian, yeah, exactly, yeah. dictatorship essentially, and that that's actually another thing. Although this is not probably going to be in the last decade or so, but that's one thing I've come around on regarding the the China tariffs. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched a podcast with uh, Andrew Yang recently. Yeah, yeah, he had that a great, great quote. Mm-hmm. He was like, "The only language China speaks and understands is money. Yep. So the only way to, to obviously you're not going to go you know war." Uh, in the combative sense of the word, but financially, yeah. you know, sanctions, you know, hurt, you know, hit them where it hurts. And I think uh, that's what we're starting to realize. And that's what's, what's fascinating is I think the world has been blind to the fact that China has been a growing threat for the last four decades because we had this kind of, you know, especially when the Soviet Union fell, there's this big collective pat on the back that, you know, our system triumphed, right. you know, liberal democracy, protection of minorities. Yeah, you know, this is the end of history. And that, that's, you know, in academia too, it was very congratulatory. You know, the idea that there's no longer going to be big power clashes. You know, we're going to solve things more in like, you know, trade forums and stuff like that, yeah. like Davos or something <clears throat> like that. Those would be the new forms of conflict resolution. If there yeah. are wars, they're going to be small civil wars within countries or, you know, certain yeah. unstable, you know, states. But what we've seen over the last decade, in fact, is that this whole idea of great power conflict where you have, you know, a country that we call like a near peer, you know, like China, mm-hmm. it's basically our peer now, you know, economically, militarily, etc., is in fact, you know, challenging us and trying to create a parallel system. And we've just been blind, blinded to that for the last two decades. You know, there's just yeah. this constant push for internationalism. And it's great. I mean, there's, there's been enormous benefits. Yeah, I don't want to completely knock the e- system. Economically it works, but yeah. the thing is it benefits both, mm-hmm. but it benefits them tremendously more. Oh right? yeah. Tremendously more. I mean, we can go into all the it reasons. Them. In a way that doesn't necessarily yeah. empower the U.S. economically. Exactly. And as it's been happening, because we've had this intellectual strain that's, you know, only thought about internationalism in terms of cooperation, we've only focused, you know, militarily, for example, I think this is a big, you know, in the area I work, we've focused for the last few decades on the Middle East, right? Mm-hmm. Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, billions, probably even trillions of dollars spent, thousands of soldiers died. We focused solely on a counterinsurgency strategy, you know, in terms of our national security policy, Obviously, terrorism is a threat. You know, it's a very scary threat yeah. in a lot of ways. But the true threat has been this great power competition. Because if anything actually does ever undermine our lifestyle, it's not going to be terrorism. It's going to be a parallel, you know, world order that's Chinese-led. Yeah. But we've been so focused with kind of laser eyes on this idea of, you know, this is the end of history and trade will eventually fix China. We don't have to worry about China. That we've kind of failed to see what you said, this kind of dual threat of enormous wealth with a, you know, complete state control at the helm. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what's fascinating to me is like, even myself, you know, I focused a lot on studying the Middle East because I thought, you know, if I wanted to ever be relevant in conflict analysis, it was once again, that thought that, you know, little broken states, that's where they're going to need mediators and people to help resolve conflicts, you know, whether it's so, diplomatically or something like that. Whereas the real threat, and what I should have studied more, is what great power competition looks like and how can you navigate, you know, a big country like China and a big country like the U.S., kind of going against each other, but managing in such a way that we don't create a war, you know, but how can we, we manage the fine aspects of that without compromising, you know, who we are. And so that's, you know, I feel like that's been a black hole in academia for the last few decades because we've been so focused on 
the wrong things, essentially. You know that quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme? <laughs> do you That's... do you see the China situation kind of being reminiscent of the U.S. versus the USSR? Yeah. Is it like a similar dynamic, like an existen- like the U.S. finally has an existential threat, threat again? Yep. We have an existential threat uh, ideologically. I think absolutely. You know, China made it very clear, especially um, with recent, you know, uh, speeches and statements they put out that they want to create you know, uh, what do they call it? A free market or um, capitalism with Chinese characteristics, mm. essentially. I can't remember what the exact term was. Or socialism with Chinese characteristics. That's fucking Sorry. scary. But um, they, that's, they're essentially putting out an alternate ideology for countries to develop. Right. They're saying our Chinese <clears throat> model emphasizes order, emphasizes economic growth, and emphasizes social harmony, right? So it's not about individualism necessarily. It's not about, you know, freedom of expression. It's about... Mm making sure people are well taken care of and in harmony with one another, but under the guidance of a very strong centralized, you know, Politburo. Yeah, what worries me, man, is that I'm in the tech sector. So there's been a few really interesting use cases or case studies, I should say, with Chinese companies Mm. infiltrating Western markets. Yeah. So the biggest one probably is TikTok. Mm hmm. You know, the social app. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Replace Vine. All of our, yeah, all high school kids have these days. Yeah. Essentially, it's like Vine, right? Before or after it went downhill. So recently, I think the U.S. Army or Navy, some some government agency banned that app on government issued phones, Mm. citing a a cybersecurity threat. Uh, The same thing has happened with DJI, the drone company. Essentially, they're the number one. I mean, I've had two of their drones, right? They're the number one drone they're the, they're the go-to company for drones, right? Consumer drones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been speculations that using the video feed and the GPS coordinates, they're trying to map out U.S. infrastructure and send it back yeah. to China, right? Um, so I'm finding these interesting borderless issues that, I mean, how do you how do you combat that, right? They put an app in the App Store, on Apple's yeah. App Store. That's, what, what I don't know, how, how do you think... You, you approach that problem. And that's, you know, I think a good example of, you know, coming back to saying that China has all this wealth, but plays by different rules than we do. You know, we this open society that's accepting of every kind of technology, you know, whether it's drone technology, Huawei is obviously the big thing in the news too. You know, 5G networks, they have yeah. the best, most affordable, efficient 5G network um, technology in the world right now. But what the problem we see in China is that all these companies are, yeah, they're technically private companies, mm. but if the state asks them for stuff, yeah. they have to turn it over, right? So if TikTok, you know, the state ever approaches TikTok executives and says, you know, we want your data, in the United States, you can have a lawsuit, right. hold it down for years. Like, you know, in San Bernardino, when there's those terror attacks in 2015, yeah, <clears throat> Apple refused to give a backdoor to the federal government. Right. Because, that's not going to fly in China. Yeah, in a free society, you have that ability. In China, you know, Whatever the Politburo decides is what what is law, right? There's yeah. no there's no constitutional protections. There's no courts to protect you. They'll throw you in jail until they find somebody who will turn over the data. So you have you know this enormous problem that if you allow them to build critical infrastructure or allow their drones to be in our airspace or even allow their apps to be in the phones of our teens. But it's not their apps. It's like our apps, right? Yeah, it's, it's like our apps. But we don't yeah. know. Like so many of these kids have no idea that this is a Chinese app on your phone. Yeah. And, and that's, Lord knows what's happening on the, on the back end of things. And that's that's the terrifying thing about, you know, this whole relationship that we have with China is that, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we tried to go spread Instagram to China, right. they decided it's becoming it. a problem. 
snap of their fingers, it's out. Russia is doing something similar. They're creating the, they're imitating the yeah. Great Firewall of China. They're their own creating internet. Their internal internet. Yeah, and it, it's smart, right? Like they they get to curate the content, the information, the flow of news. Which actors even get to spread news on their own terms? Yeah, and um, what's interesting there too is. You know, when we talk about how information flows, we're having a lot of problems in the West, obviously, recently, especially with, you know, the whole controversies around, you know, bots and people trying to influence elections and fake news, et cetera, that whole kind of uh, trifecta yeah. of issues. We are seeing that they're using strategies in order to kind of place information and create doubt institutions in our countries, but we don't have a reverse ability yeah, to do yeah, that. Because they have the protection right? of a firewall or something. So like in China, if you want people to believe that a news institution, you can eliminate any information that'll make them mm-hmm. question institutions, right? So you can create you know, a vast majority of the population with a rock solid belief that the news they're getting is the real news. Whereas here, we have so many different sources of information and we have so many people you know, deliberately hmm. placing fake information in the mix and kind of exposing embarrassing information, information that's meant to yeah. undermine our institutions, that we're kind of having a disintegration of trust because we have such an open society. And it's a beautiful thing to have all these sources of information. And I think, you know, a marketplace information is a great thing. But when you can't then do the same thing in other countries and you know that they have a very committed state strategy of spreading misinformation and creating doubt, you're in trouble because you're you're playing a serious disadvantage. They have an antivirus essentially yeah. when it comes to information, right? I mean, they're playing with two arms up that they can guard right. their face with, whereas and you're just coming at them with your arms behind your yeah, back, yeah. you know. And uh, that's no way to win a boxing match, right? Because you're just gonna keep getting stuck in the face, you know. Frankly, so there, there's two projects. <laughs> um, one is really interesting. So mm-hmm. I think it's obvious this is gonna be an informational war, right? Yeah. Hands down. So there's an interesting project. Um, that's actually targeting North Korea, mm. which is a donation bank mm. for USB sticks. So this nonprofit takes USBs, mm. wipes them clean. I'll even link it so you know you can check it out. But um, wipes the USB clean and loads them with literature, music, movies, and other you know free information that mm-hmm. is banned in North Korea. Then they actually infiltrate North Korea and spread those USB sticks everywhere. Mm. So citizens can have access to Wikipedia, I think, might be backed up on there as well. So it's this informational attack, mm. right, to infiltrate that firewall, that they call it. Along those lines of thinking, I think SpaceX might be the best weapon in this informational war. Mm. And I'll tell you why. Um, two, three years ago, I even did a video on this. SpaceX is launching, I think, 5,000 satellites, creating a global internet around the world, Mm. right? It's not hard to imagine that they even stated this year, I think, is going to be, you'll be able to subscribe to SpaceX's internet, right? It's not hard to imagine a global internet blanketing the whole planet Mm -hmm. in which China probably wouldn't be able to block, right? So if you're a Chinese citizen, you might be able to just connect to a Wi-Fi SpaceX, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's much harder to block satellite signals, right? If it's a local Wi-Fi network point, maybe. So that, I think, might be the weapon against these closed internet Mm. societies, right? Yeah, building a great satellite wall sounds a lot more complicated than just building a firewall, definitely. And that's, that's, you know, frankly... Yeah, that's why we should always never be, you know, too fatalistic about these things because there's always new technologies coming out that completely just change the paradigm, right? And we don't know. And I think people always do tend to trend towards, you know, freedom of thought and freedom of information. There's something human about that. You so think there's so, a, you think it's an inherent human thing? I think it's not. Yeah, there's always ingrained? there are some people who definitely, you know, err more towards, you know, not wanting to go against the status quo. 
and like, you know, keep the system as it is. But there's always going to be a strong faction in society of people that are just, you know, searchers and are always going to be skeptical of the mainstream narrative. And that's what leads to, you know, there's always that, we all have that one friend who's always, you know, looking at the opposite view of something, right? Yeah. And that's, I think that exists everywhere. You know, that's, that's something that's inherently human. What do you think of uh, Trump creating this space force, pouring $750 billion into creating a new branch of uh, the U.S.? I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement of what's a reality, you know. I uh, like it. Yeah, I think it's right. It's uh, the right thinking. You know, there's there's things to criticize about President Trump and the idea of a space force. You know, it's easy to make a funny meme about, you know, yeah. how ridiculous it sounds in a but way. There's something forward thinking there. Yeah, there's absolutely. I mean, space is going to be a major frontier frontier of, you know, competition and conflict. Conflict. Exactly. I mean, it's space actually is more interesting case because space is so ill defined. You right. know, we've made no rules about who owns what in space. You know who can do what in space, but yet already space infrastructure is critical to how we live. And it's satellites. being built. Yeah, right? it's being built. There's, I mean, you know, in terms of research, obviously, of International Space Station, but our entire uh, networks are now based off satellites that are just floating around in, in free space, right? Yeah, this is so this is a question um, that I, I had one man, Chuck, a couple, I mean, years ago we had this discussion, but even today I read that Elon Musk is planning on migrating something like a million people onto Mars. He plans on sending three spaceships per day to Mars every single day, Imagine right? That. Until I think maybe he reaches that threshold uh, by 2050, which isn't that far away, right? Yeah, it's for sure. 30 years away. Are you familiar with forking? No. What's so in programming, there is this concept of forking, which is when, uh, let's say we have a group of five people and we mm -hmm. work on this open source project, right? And if we hit a point of conflict where none of us agree on the future of our project. Um, forking is essentially saying, okay, everybody get a, gets a copy of a, a backup of the project and follows their vision. And mm -hmm. it just splits. It's, it's a split in the road, right? It's a yeah. branch. So this happens a lot in cryptocurrencies. For people that follow cryptocurrencies, yeah, there's the forks. I've heard of those kind of forks, yeah. So it's essentially, this is a stopping point. Mm -hmm. We no longer agree. We don't see eye to eye. I'm gonna see. I'm gonna get the rest of the, the code so far. So are you. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna do my own vision with it and program it on the parameters I believe are true, and you're gonna do the same. Mm -hmm. Essentially creating two different, distinct um, code bases that share a similar DNA, right? Yeah. They're branching evolutionarily. So it seems to me that us going to Mars is the first major fork in human civilization. Mm. I would argue the first fork is probably like, you know, Columbus going to the U.S. Yeah, was, the or, I mean, if you want to go that. further back than that. But every time a population leaves an island or a continent mm -hmm. in search of a new land, you can almost consider, I kind of consider that a fork in yeah. society. So what's interesting to me with Mars is that we're going to have a major fundamental fork. We're forking society on, on a planetary scale. Mm-hmm. What legal system is going to be dominant there and who gets to determine it? The currency of exchange. Um, I mean, these are, it's like a do-over, right? Because yeah. if you wanted to instate a new constitution in the U.S., mm -hmm. that would never happen. And this pattern you see with startups, right? You have HP. Mm -hmm. They're stuck in their ways. They're this huge, huge company, right? Thousands of employees, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And then you have a smaller startup that challenges them. That's more more uh, nimble. It can move faster. It can make decisions quicker, right? That same thing is is what's playing out in Mars. You yeah. can have a million people who can throw away a constitution just like that, mm -hmm. right? If they decide on it. So to me, that's going to be like the the thing to watch with that whole situation. A lot of people are caught up on the 
the logistics, what the spaceship looks like, how mm-hmm. we're going to get there. That's cool. A technical challenge, yeah. But to me, what, when things get interesting is what happens when people do get there and they do live there. Yeah, the social um, challenge. Mm-hmm. What's going to be the first murder on Mars and how are we going to handle the justice? And who, right? Is it going to be SpaceX is an American company? Yeah. Does that make it an American, a branch of the US if we go to, to Mars? Is that a, 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 an American colony? Yeah. Or, or is it a corporate colony? Or Exactly. So those are really interesting questions, man, that I think... Is gonna, it's unprecedented for humans to get to rewrite society and have this rich database or library mm. to borrow from, right? Like we know what the constitution is. They can borrow cryptocurrencies. They can reject this, this second mm. amendment, which with gravity, I don't even know how that would work there, but you know what I'm <laughs> It'll saying? It'll be different dynamics so for sure. <laughs> that to me is really interesting. Like what happens when we mm. fork society to Mars? Well, see, I would, I would disagree with you that forking is unprecedented in history. I think what you just said about the Columbian Exchange and the creation of America, for example, America is exactly what you just described. I wasn't saying it's impressive. I'm saying this type of forking. Yeah, this interplanetary forking. The intensity of it is. I think the social social elements of forking are not unprecedented. So like, for Mm -hmm. example, like you just said about the United States, the founding fathers have this whole library of the old world, you know. So they came up with a society that they tried to order based off all the lessons of the old world, right? So I think what we're going to have in Mars you know, the opportunity there is to take the best practices, you know, hopefully we'll have a, mm-hmm. a wise set of leaders or, yeah. you know, a group of people that can come together and say what principles will lead to the best kind of society. And I think that'll be informed That's largely. That's what the U.S. did. That, that, yeah. We're, we're in agreement here. That's yeah. exactly my, my point. It's like, there's a vague parallel, but. but I think it'll be similar on Mars, depending on what country the people come from. Yeah. They're going to have an idea of what, you know, like we all do, depending on where you grew up, you have an idea of what's good, what's bad. You know, if somebody gets murdered, how mm-hmm. should they be treated? We all have a yeah. common societal understanding. So let's say like the first thousand people on Mars are all Americans from Northern mm-hmm. Virginia. Yeah. Let's say Northern Virginia is a very well-ordered place, you know, pretty suburban. Uh, education's really emphasized, pretty progressive area. So they're probably a crazy society that's, you know, mostly along those lines. But let's say you had a thousand people from India, mm-hmm. you know, go there right now from from rural India, let's say. They're probably all most likely going to have a certain religious view. Yeah, They're going to have a certain way of living, you know. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. That, to me, how that plays mm-hmm. out is what interests me about that whole situation with Mars. It's not so much the logistics and the tech. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to see how that story unfolds, right? Like, if we look at the way Britain and the Revolutionary War, they, they came mm-hmm. back to the U.S., are we going to be the new Britain? Are we going to yeah. go to Mars and try to take over? Is there going to be renegade cowboys on Mars that just break off and, and have their own anarchy? That to me is going to be interesting because it's not evenly distributed. Not every country can afford the logistics. Yeah. So it's not going to be fairly represented just like it was back in the day, right? The Europeans came to the, to America. It wasn't yeah. an equal representation of Indians or Bangladesh. It was Ellis Island, right? Funneled uh, the Europeans. So that's that's something I'm interested in. And more specifically, because of the opportunity to con- to construct things from scratch Yeah. at this stage of the game, right? Like there's mm-hmm. so many interesting things to be borrowed. I'm interested in what kind of dependency that society is going to have on Earth for resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if there's an embargo or something, right? If the U.S. just decides, nope, we're cutting SpaceX's access. To yeah. that, that's what interests me about that whole thing. I think that's, that's going to be um, one area where a lot of new ideas are going to come into play. You know, for an American company, SpaceX, you know, SpaceX is an American company. But in a lot of ways, like a lot of companies, it's also international. You know, I'm sure it has international employees, international stakeholders. It's a corporation, right? Well, the that first, invest in. the first commercial passenger, I believe, is from Japan. From Japan, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So, 
or it's definitely an Asian country. I believe it's Japan, but mm. so that just shows you, right? Like the first person on an American company is going to be Japanese, right? Yeah. Potentially on being, a consumer being brought level. to space. Is that to be brought to Mars or be brought to space? I don't. I don't recall. Mm. I, I don't. I don't know. One, one of the two, but yeah, I mean that. That's so. I think personally that you know we're talking about the creation of the space force and all that. That's when the big competition is going to come about. Whose ideas are going to be dominant as humans start to expand to other planets, right? Is it going to be, yeah. you know, China that gets there first and starts their colony? Because that's most certainly going to be, you know, according to Chinese values. Is yeah, it going yeah. to be a combination of Americans and, you know, Europeans who make it there first? Even in between Americans and Europeans, we have a lot of differences, right? Oh, yeah. 100%. So who's, who's going to – whose values are going to predominate? I think it's largely going to be about, you know, what are the attitudes of the people you're saying mm. there? Because we're all socialized on Earth still. That first generation especially yeah. is going to be socialized on Earth. And they're going to eventually have kids there, raise families. They're going to pass on the values that they had. So really it comes down to which group becomes a dominant group or which set of ideas become the dominant set of ideas, I think. But then, like you said, too, those people, once they live there, there's going to be this huge separation from Earth. You know, right now they say, what, it's going to take three years to travel between Mars I, and Earth? I, I think three months. Three months, really? I, I think so, yeah. Get between Mars and Earth? Okay. I, I, I could be confused, but I believe it was something in the, in the order of months. Months still. I mean, that kind That's of... That's a lot. Dude. Three months is, is yeah. an incredibly long time. That kind of physical distance. I mean, whether it's three yeah. months or three years... That's going to make them feel like they're on their own, right? And 100%. so, you know, there's going to be a dependency at first, like you said, and they're going to need to be supplied constantly. So I'm sure gonna they're going to be a lot more reliant. And also they're going to feel a lot more uh, close to Earth during those first, you know, yeah. years or however long it takes. But once that self-sufficiency comes along, that's when people's attitudes start to change, right? Yeah. Once you realize I can produce things on my own, then they're going to want a greater say in how they run their own society, I think. So I think that's going to be how it's going to develop is it will be a very close relationship from the start, but we're going to start seeing them increasingly kind of take the reins and say, you know, we have our own ideas about things. We don't need earth telling yeah. us how to do things anymore. Cause we're the people who live here. Right. And that's, you know, like it comes back to, I always go back to history, but like, you know, taxation without representation, right. When America mm -hmm. was an early colony and needed Britain for defense and needed it to keep order in the colonies, but eventually America started hitting its own stride and people are like, well, we can run our own affairs. We yeah. don't need another country telling us. And that's when it really took off, right? And that's when we started getting some of the new ideas. And that's when people eventually, you know, culminating in the, you know, creation of our constitution, they said, actually, you know, we're going to go reach back into the best lessons of history and create a whole new system here. Still a very obviously English influence system and European influence system, but nevertheless, they tried to take the best lessons from where they came from and apply them to new society. Yeah. About the space force and just that, that whole area of exploration, commercially even, one thing I've, I've realized more so, you know, when you when you take more financial responsibilities and you get more in tune and you have more skin in the game of the, the market and mm -hmm. the country you're in, I see this. I don't know if it's if it's ignorance, willful, or I don't I don't know what the case is, but I don't think enough people realize that part of the American lifestyle mm -hmm. that the those who are fortunate, you know, get to enjoy comes from this global domination. And uh, I don't want to call America the bully in the room, but it's definitely not too far of a stretch. And I think a lot of that, the economic uh, fruits we enjoy is because of that position in the world. Like you have to be the baddest motherfucker for other people to fear you to keep the peace, right? To get certain dynamics in place. And I think a lot of people are not willing to acknowledge that that's, be, that's why we're so great is because as much as we hate it, right? The military, the weapons, the nukes, 
That's why we get to enjoy this lifestyle because of the fear we impose in other countries not to fuck with us. And, and do, you, do you think that's too far from the truth? I, I would disagree personally. Yeah. And I would disagree on the basis that American wealth, I don't think. So the global trading system and the global stability we've had for the last you know 70 or so years is definitely predicated on the American military strength. But I don't think we've used that no, strength. We have innovation. You know? you know, we haven't used that strength necessarily in such a bullying way, though. I think a lot of times American strength is usually more of a quiet strength. Like, you know, we that, patrol. That's what I'm saying, though. Yeah, we patrol the shipping lanes. We make sure trade can happen. If there's a bad actor in a neighborhood, you know, as we've done multiple times, we can go in and kind of set people straight. But I'd say that the source of American wealth and the kind of lifestyle we have is the you know, the work Americans do. No, that's not what you I'm know? saying. It's silent now because it was loud in the past. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the global system naturally. People know what we do military-wise, right? Yeah. So that's going to change the way they treat you. Yeah, I think. Geopolitically. People realize that America, you know, holds a lot of the cards and certainly countries that, you know, rely on us for mutual defense or other mutual relationships. They know that we're the, the source of a lot, right? So they're going to obviously... You know, America definitely holds more cards in most countries. Militarily, right. because our economy is right. so strong, we have so much production in this country, yeah. because our education system is so strong. There's a lot of reasons. But I don't think it's purely that we just wield no, 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 a I'm, big I'm, stick the I'm hardest. Not, I'm not, no, I'm not saying it's purely. You know? but I'm saying that's definitely a factor that you can't ignore. Yeah. Right? People are like, well, let's stop making weapons and invest in, in fixing the homeless. I agree with the sentiment. Mm -hmm. But you can't, you can't ignore the fact that because we have these weapons yeah. – it's because, and that's I mean, certainly it's, important, and it's a consequence. People too have lived for so long that you know, I've read enough that I realize that this time period we had in the world, this period of like you know most peace and probably ninety percent of the world, mm -hmm. is just not the fact of human history, right? And it's because we've created such enormous military power, you know, mm -hmm. us, Russia, China, etc., that if we were ever to go to war, it'd be catastrophic. But you right. still need for everybody to remember that that's an issue. That war Absolutely. is always possible. So you need Absolutely, deterrence, yeah. right? And the best way to have deterrence is to have big ships that sail around the world, aircraft yeah. carriers, is to hold, you know, big military drills. It's signaling. Yeah, it's signaling, and, right? And, that, and that's kind of like tied to what I'm saying. It's mm -hmm. this indulgence in the military complex, there's good to it. Oh, hands down. I think I see what you're saying more clearly now. Yeah. And in that, that sense, I hands down agree right. with you that a, a massive military – you know, it's very easy to look at the budget and be like, oh, my God, we're spending right. $700 billion, but we don't see any of the, the benefit That's of it. That's my point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's maybe not a direct benefit, but indirectly, there certainly are benefits because that solidifies the position that the U.S. has on a, on a global scale in terms yeah. of power. It's a power dynamic, right? Yeah. Being, being able to have bases in almost every country in the world, right. be able to sail ships through all the major straits, right. that has intangible benefits to global order, right? And you don't get to do that if you're a, a weak country. Yeah, you don't you don't need to do that because you have the United States doing it for you. I mean, that's so, that's something that a lot of countries benefit from. Is if it was up to all the other countries in the world, they wouldn't be able to sustain this massive global right, system we have because right. they would just you know argue amongst themselves, etc. When you have one great power, they can kind of lay a framework for other countries to then cooperate. Game theory. Yeah. Game, actually, my my position on this is perfectly summed up by a paper. Uh, it's a mathematics paper which I've never been able to find. Maybe I'll, I'll give it another go. But some guy claimed that the Joker in Batman mm -hmm. did more good to Gotham than Batman. Hmm. The argument there is the Joker keeps all the mafia in check. They're all mm. scared shitless. 
So that simplifies Batman's job of just making sure he keeps the Joker in check, who in turn does way of it's kind of like that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's yeah, so he it's keeps- almost like a game theoretical approach to these power dynamics, right? And because the US people know through whether it's signaling or the, the national budget, they know what this country can do. Yeah. It keeps the peace. Like, all right, well, we're just going to do this this way because you can go south with this. And I think that the North Korea incident with Trump was probably a beautiful example of that, right? Mm -hmm. The North Korea dude uh, encountered somebody as crazy as him. And game theory tells you that a a low level sprinkle of unpredictability does wonders for negotiations every once and again, right? And that's what happened. And why? Because he knew. Like, when he tweeted, I got a, a bigger button, he wasn't bullshitting. Yeah, let's have a bigger button, and that's why it worked. So, I mean, that's the crazy thing about Trump too. That's that's an interesting topic to bring up, just because we had this this yeah. recent assassin. You know, the recent not I shouldn't say the recent. You know, we recently killed uh, Soleimani in the Middle East. Uh, he was an Iranian general, had the IRGC, which is like you know kind of the Iranian equivalent of like um, a more militarized CIA. Yeah, and the idea of killing him was, you know, somebody from me who studies a lot of foreign policies, like, you know, these kind of people are untouchable, right? Mm. Because just the the potential unpredictability of killing somebody who's that high up and wields as much influence as he does, you just don't know what it's going to do. But the way it's developing, by taking that kind of unpredictable step that no more, uh, I guess, mainstream person right. would take, the Iranians are like, holy crap, you know, what the hell just happened? I can't believe he just did that. You got to call the bluff now. Yeah. And they have no way of calling it. Right, they have and, no and, way and of that. That sets a power dynamic right there. It's, it yeah. reminds me of, I mean, not to <laughs> to bring it to like a more crude and, and simplified <laughs> example, but it's like jail. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see people in prison, and I watch a lot of these shows, what's the rule? You go in there, the first person to try you, you swing on them. You mm-hmm. might get your ass beat, but it just lets everybody else know they can't try you and get away with it that easy, right? So it's yeah. basically this. That's the thing, Iran. You know, it's kind of creeping, <clears> right? So like they uh, launched that drone strike in Saudi Arabia that oh, cut off like five yeah. percent of the world. Oil supply, they'd start messing with ships, seizing tankers. You know, they tried firing some rockets at U.S. bases. They raided our embassy. And, they're, you know, so they were definitely pushing pushing the limits of what's acceptable, right? But instead of, like, Trump just killing a deputy or just killing some things, he went straight for the jugular. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He went straight for the punch in the face as opposed to just, you know, pushing somebody, right? And uh, that kind of directness was not something they expected. I think they expected yeah. for it to kind of be a shadow war where people keep bouncing around between proxies and all that. But he went straight to like the meat of the matter. Yeah. And like you said, just like walking into a place and just punching somebody in the face, it's, right? It's playing chicken with it's, a back truck. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, and I, that's that's more so what I was getting at. It's 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 crude, as it much shatters as people niceties. Don't like, yeah. You know, we're all for peace and we want world peace. Mm. Part of this world peace is acquired through the threat of potential violence, right? Or, mm-hmm. or the capacity for some sort of violence. And I think that it's like the the elephant in the room. People maybe are not, maybe, I don't know if they're, I don't want to use the word educated, but maybe they're not aware that peace is achieved through the threat of violence in a lot of, a lot of so sense. The beautiful thing about America is we've created a society where like the institutions are <laughs> so good that having to use violence to achieve your aims has become almost like, you know, something from the mm-hmm. past, right? It's something that's backwards, irrelevant. Right. It's an old idea to stick in the mud, whatever. A country is right? a monopoly. A nation is a monopoly on violence, right? As a yeah, I mean, the, originally the, the idea of nationhood, and the reason we create a state is you have one central actor that's a monopoly on violence, right? And that's the state. And the state, you know, takes all these different unorganized tribes of human beings or communities of human beings and says, no, there is one yeah. authority and we're all <laughs> living by a certain set of rules, Right. And we've lived in statehood, you know, the United States especially, and we've kind of developed all these different ways of solving problems outside of violence, that the idea of using violence 
right. domestically has become just, you know, it's backwards. Right? I mean, it's almost like to me, it seems like it's once the atomic bomb was invented, mm-hmm. these, these otherwise violent conflicts have been outsourced to abstraction to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think there was a movie that maybe it was called like War Games. I haven't seen that one. Where basically war is, it becomes a video game simulation. Like, mm. well, if you do this, let me just show you virtually what I can do. Yeah. Right? And I'm actually simulating my cap- my capability as a country and as a weapons. I can either send a nuke or I can show you in a simulation exactly what's well, going well, to happen. Mm-hmm. And then you make your move, right? You simulate based on, on your capability what you can do as a counter. So essentially you have these virtual simulation wars. So you need to create a real physical violence right. just and the show that my capability is greater than yours and this is how it's gonna end up. So it's just save the It's like playing chess. It's like, yeah, exactly. And yeah. whatever the final move is, it's like, well, do you wanna to stick to that or do you wanna actually act it out for real? <laughs> like, yeah. So I think it, in the future, man, it's almost has has to be some sort of uh I, I see the war conflict has shifted to the internet for that. That's how I interpret it, right? Hacking elections, yeah. Um, fake news. It's 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 shifting. what we call yeah. The and that's uh, actually there's a term for that already. It's called gray zone conflict, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's not having these direct conflicts where you're having you know two nation state actors fighting each other like you'd have in World War Two. It's finding proxies, proxies yeah, yeah, and people to fight on your behalf while having plausible deniability. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you always maintain the plausible deniability, so you never have to escalate to the level of war. You can always say, oh, you know, we have some interest with that group. We don't fully control them. So that group is, you know, acting autonomously. You have that, like everybody knows for a fact that you're probably the person funding and training that group, but, but you no don't make can, the chain yeah. of command so direct that you have plausible deniability to do something wrong or they go too far. Yeah. So doing that, you know, like the Russians, you know, the Russian FSG, you know, their, their security forces are almost certainly cultivating groups of hackers, you know, across Eastern oh, Europe, yeah. right? And then letting them loose on the U.S. or hackers within Russia, but none of these hackers are directly associated with the state. And same with Iran. You know, Iran, uh, those missile strikes that um, initially hit a U.S. base and killed a contractor—they were done by uh, a militia group that was an Iraqi militia group, but basically had received all of its training. And you know, the, the Hus- it was called—I uh, think it was Khatib Hezbollah. There's like this all these Hezbollah, different. They, they had a, a terrorist attack in Bulgaria. Mm. like eight years ago or something yeah i mean most of these groups you know they are iranian trained they receive funding and most likely iran calls the shots they do have their own domestic leaders so there's enough mm. plausible liability so these groups are able to carry out you know whether it's cyber attacks in case of yeah. the fsg or kinetic attacks in case of these uh you know iraqi militia groups without two countries going to war so it's moved to the gray yeah. zone right yeah. and i think what you just said about it becoming more in the cyber zone is going to become especially relevant or, you know, it could just be like um, fully autonomous weapon systems, right? Right now, drones are proliferating to militia groups that are not associated yeah. with any state, you know, and uh, there's all these different possibilities for what they going, could do. Going back to the simulation thing, mm-hmm. if we were to simulate a war, the simulation can only be taken seriously if you do, in fact, have, have those capabilities, the capabilities yeah. physically in reality in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. You can't bluff your way into it. So I guess that's kind of how it ties back in. You need the capability so that you can have the gray zone. Yeah. I mean, it's right? almost like, you know, during the, the 1960s, the Soviet Union, the United States kept building all these nuclear weapons and they right. kept dropping them, you know, and testing just to Middle show like, ocean. yeah, that's exactly know, what it was. We can create these massive explosions, right? right? So here's your simulation. 
But imagine if, you know, instead of irradiating the atmosphere, you could just do it on a computer and yeah. say like, yeah. this is my bomb will do to your cities. Yeah. You know, if you decide to fuck with us, you know, that's, like, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. So I do, I do agree with you. I think that honestly would be the most productive way for a conflict to go is like you have such a sophisticated simulation of what your military forces are that you don't need to, you know, put on all of the domestic, all the physical, you know, yeah. drills and all that. And the space force that, that I think is probably a good idea. It's in a world where other actors have access to weapons, mm -hmm. probably the game theoretically smart thing to do is to also have the same weapons. Yeah. You know, like Chris said something the other day, we were talking about guns or something. He said, if everybody has nukes, you need to get a nuke. Yeah. Right? And it's like the same thing. It's, I so mean, it, it makes sense to have a space arm, right? And to be maybe the first in that space. Yeah, I mean, that, then you have the edge, you know? Right. And that edge gives you, you know, I think probably the greatest panic the Soviet Union went through is when they realized, you know, America had a nuclear weapon and they didn't have one and, you know, they saw what happened in, uh, you know, Japan. Hiroshima. Imagine how terrifying that is. Like, if yeah. you have an entire army of 500,000 people that can be wiped out by one bomb yeah. in one second, that's, that's horrifying from any kind of strategic planning perspective. So yeah. to get the edge in space first and say, like, you know, have the ability to shoot down a nuke in space before it can Fucking even reach a country or uh, <clears throat> take out a country's satellite system and cut off their communications, that's a big strategic competitive yeah. advantage, right? Yeah. And uh, if I was a country, I'd want that. I've so, never been yeah. pro-Trump. I'm still really not. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you got to give credit when credit is due. And, and to actually not to his credit, but I think a lot of those things might be inconsequential. I don't think he might be mm -hmm. doing it on purpose. It just might play out in favor. But yeah, I think he's definitely not the architect. Some of these ideas, he has people in his administration that are the architects. But he is willing to back them. And like you said, give credit where credit's due. Ultimately, he leads that administration and is doing some good stuff. You know, yeah. I think the tariff war with China needed to happen, right? I think uh, creation of a space force. Yeah. I think some of the way he's managing some of the conflicts, international relations are not the worst they could be. You know, right Probably now, not the best, but yeah, but it shakes things up. I guess it I shakes things it, up, it, and so, sometimes it's in a positive way. There's a lot of you know terrible shit he's doing. Yeah, I mean, it causes us too just to reassess. Sometimes we have like somebody who really goes against the grain, yeah. whether it's a good or a bad way, it causes you to reassess why are these things valuable. Like NATO, mm -hmm. for example, has been like, a, it's just been a solid, you know, something that's unchangeable, right? It's something that Europe and America, we share common security interests, but somebody like Trump coming along kind of sneering at NATO and maybe I realized, hey, NATO's actually pretty important. Maybe you kind of need to like rethink yeah. how it's going to work in the 21st century, right? So Sh it might, the might short not be a bad term, thing. I think the short-term pain of Trump is probably worth it in the long term. Mm -hmm. I think every once in a while, like you said, man, you got to shake shit up a little bit just to make you realize things, right? That as long as he doesn't destroy institutions yeah. completely, like if you completely gut and destroy institution, then you might have lost something that might be irreplaceable. And that would be a tragedy. But if you shake them up enough... Yeah. That they can be rebuilt, possibly even better. You know, it's like an earthquake that maybe damages the foundation. You can still patch it up and there's still yeah. hope there. Right. And maybe you'll be built even better. Right. Or a stress test. Stress same, test. Same yeah. Things. It's a stress test. And uh, I think that's, you know, America, democracy mm -hmm. is always about experimenting. Right. And uh, Trump's one of those experiments mm -hmm. that, you know, he's going to do things differently. And I don't think things are going to fall apart because of it, frankly, because I think we built things strong enough at the foundation that things won't fall apart. That's my, yeah, yeah, you know, man, I'm that, optimistic. That, that's that why I enjoy catching up on mm -hmm. politics. I'm not into politics, like mm -hmm. almost at all. Mm -hmm. I, I don't follow much outside of what falls in my Twitter timeline. I keep up with the basic headlines. 
it's never been something or lately at least that I'm like heavily following and like mm-hmm. invested in, but it's always good to kind of get other people's perspectives. And oh, I, you know, sure, I, yeah. I enjoy chopping it up with people that are into it way more than I am. I always end up learning something. Um, what about this election? What, what do you see happening? 2020 November, right? That's uh, I think billion dollar question, but I think right now the way the the Democrats are going, you know, they just are they're chopping each other up right now. I think you may have heard the last <clears throat> week, but um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of had this whole conflict where she wouldn't shake or he wouldn't shake her hand or yeah, they didn't shake hands yeah, end yeah. of the debate. I don't know who initiated it. I actually didn't get the chance to I watch the debate. I haven't seen any other debates, but it stemmed from an issue where they had apparently met right before kicking off both their campaigns. And Elizabeth Warren is alleging that Bernie Sanders says that he didn't think a woman could win. I don't believe that for a fucking second. Yeah, I don't believe it. I think that it was misconstrued that maybe he thought Elizabeth Warren couldn't win. And maybe she interpreted that way. Or honestly, this coming right before the primary start, me being a little bit cynical. You know, I try to be optimistic about things, see the best people. But you got to be a little bit cynical. She's looking for some way to damage him. I don't like it. I've never never seen her talk. Mm -hmm. I've never seen any videos. I don't know what they're their uh, platforms are. Um, I don't like her. Mm-hmm. And I, that that says a lot for somebody who hasn't even heard her talk. Mm-hmm. Um, just reading some of the things um, and just, I, I just don't get a good vibe off her. I think a lot of people don't vote based on facts. They vote based on gut feeling. Mm-hmm. That's not somebody I just fuck with at all. Uh, and I'm kind of giving you my perspective as yeah. like a, a noob in this, you know, like I don't have any biases uh, in terms of like, I'm not, I don't have a dog in a fight. Mm-hmm. I tend to be a Democrat, I guess, but I, I'm leaning on that side, mm-hmm. I would think. But Bernie, here's my problem, man. Mm. It's his posture. Mm. I don't think you vote for somebody who doesn't fucking look confident. And I think without even knowing anything about him, just looking at him, he looks old and frail. And that's not like a personal attack. I'm just, you know, being 100, right? Like he doesn't. Yeah. project confidence and i think that is a, a subconscious thing that people check for it's like a handshake right like yeah you might be the best candidate but if you got some sweaty ass hands and give me a weak handshake it's kind of it's gonna ruin my day a little bit right i don't get that confidence from him i think he's like uh i don't know if he fell in the shower one time like a year ago or something and and still kept on his run and had like this little eye patch he looked terrible yeah he had a heart heart surgery recently too yeah and yeah. i think those factors are really working against them. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of people vote from that, that mm-hmm. instinctive nature, right? Of just like gauging somebody. Um, one person that I'm really into and I've only seen, that's the only person I've seen a podcast is Andrew Yang. Mm. I really fuck with him. I saw him on uh, the H3 podcast. I don't know if you, if no, you watched that. Show. I really. recently started peeping the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell you why I like the guy. First of all, he's like a young young cat you know he's hungry and i really enjoyed his uh i really agree with with his stance on china mm-hmm. and ai ai yeah so he 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 knows what's up mm-hmm. i think it was a coder a programmer i believe he was, he was in the tech industry yeah i don't know what the exact nature of his position was. he's on point now i don't know if they'll back him or not i have no idea but just like my my bird eye view of the whole political landscape with as somebody who's not really invested in it um, I think Warren does not have a chance. I think it's Bernie. They're probably going to boost him up. Yang, I, I hope he comes out on top. I'm mm. probably going to vote for him, actually. 
just because I feel like I'm obligated to vote and support somebody who's forward thinking and, you know, we align on so many views. So I'm probably going to vote for Andrew Yang. Um, with that being said, I think Trump's probably has a 60% chance of winning. Yeah. Um, he probably still has a really good chance. And I have a feeling whatever the next president is, I think Trump just really fucked up that mold. He mm-hmm. broke the mold. I think the next person has to be, I'm not going to say as big of a character as his, but I don't know, man. What do you, what do you think? So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot lot you just covered. I mean, so starting with, with Elizabeth Warren, I think uh, she's somebody who – she's an academic. She was a, a Harvard law professor, so incredibly smart woman. But there is a lot that's – you know, in terms of policy, I do have some disagreements with her. But I had a lot of respect for her until this whole Bernie thing because I think that yeah, she's that, playing that to way, a right. kind of identity politics that like – Bernie's one of the most progressive guys you'll ever hear about. If you look at his record know, on civil rights, that's why women's I, rights, like to go after a guy like that. I refuse to believe on those was, grounds. Nah, that's just, nah. I mean, it's, it's mean spirited too. It's, it's, yeah, it's mean spirited. And I think that was really wrong. So yeah, she too, uh, you I don't know, trust her. Yeah. I think I don't trust her. It's unfortunate that she played herself, bro. She played yeah. herself. Like she was him. Like you said, him yeah. out of everybody to play that shit with. Yeah. Come on, man. And that's the thing. He's rooting for you. He's <laughs> the one who has the most similar views to her. Right. So it's obviously clear what she's trying to do. She's trying to get the progressive vote, right? That far left, the Democratic Party. It's kind of split between her and Bernie. I don't know if it'll backfire because some of them really care about any politics like that. So it might have yeah. played to them. But when you come against Donald Trump, he's going to eat you alive, right? Yeah. And it's going to rub a lot of regular, like moderate Americans like me you're gonna yeah. see that and be like, well, come on, like we know we know what was up, like you know what kind of game you were playing. You yeah. might have won the primaries because of it, yeah, but no. it hurts for a general election. So yeah, so her whatever. Yeah. Bernie also, I think it's it's funny the the way you characterize it that we we vote so much on um, you know, the gut feeling a lot of Americans do. You know, yeah. Donald Trump, he's somebody who's been American pop culture for like what the last like 20, 30 he's, years. He's been on too. WWE, Home Alone <laughs> Two. Yeah, man, he's got this guy with a uh, st- Stone Cold Steve. Uh, yeah, he's got the st- <laughs> yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin stutter yeah. on the ropes. He's throwing Vince McMahon over the ropes. Yeah. Like, my man is. Yeah, apparently he's one of the most busy. mentioned people in rap songs. I didn't know that, but they did a study where, yeah. like, yeah, like people, you know, saying up like Donald Trump Mac or something. Miller, like that. R.I.P. has a song, you know, Donald Trump before the whole election thing. Yeah. yeah, I believe that. So his posture and his association <clears throat> with like wealth and luxury, and just looking at him, you know, some people think he looks ridiculous, but. He's a certain aura and kind of uh, persona he's built up, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, when you see somebody like Bernie, he's he's a good speaker, and you know I'm somebody who likes to engage with things, you know, by by reading what he writes, and you know he had a good interview too with um, on the Joe Rogan podcast. Mm-hmm. So you know there's things to respect about Bernie, but I agree sure. yeah. that he does, you know, come across as somebody you know. And Saturday Night Live makes fun of him. Yeah. No, it's, I like you know, him. age related stuff. My yeah. concern is that people won't take to his ideas because of the projection. Yeah. I'm not saying that's how I perceive it, although it is, but I'm not if saying If we're going to be honest about how people think. Yeah. That's not going to deter me from voting for him, yeah. but I have a feeling and a fear that it will for a lot of... Uh, if we're going to be honest, like you said, if we're going to keep it 100 and talk about how people think, yeah. image just matters, especially Fuck at that yeah. level. It's just... Especially we live in a society more so than ever. You have an Instagram, Twitter, you got, you're on the news all the time. How you look at all those situations? He's not, he's you know? not well put together. Mm. Like... You know what I mean? Trump is. Yeah. I mean, he's got an ill-fitted suit, but he just, I, I don't know if it's the shoulders. I don't know what yeah. it is. He just, when you look at him, he's he's well put together. Yeah. Not I mean, fashion-wise, but just the, the aura he projects. Like, this guy's fucking confident. He, yeah. He knows a thing or two. And with Bernie, I just see like this fucking high school volleyball coach. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he just doesn't have the, I think he's like a homely type of guy. But Bernie would have been a good radio president. 
you know, in the radio era. She's got a really strong voice. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, visually, and it matters. I mean, like, there's that famous case of, like, when uh, Nixon and um, JFK first debated That's on exactly screen. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Yeah, you know, Nixon looked terrible, but everybody listened on to the radio, radio said he won. Yeah, he won, right? Yeah. Whereas JFK looked great on the TV, but everybody thought he was weaker in the radio performance. So what you said, that, that perfectly illustrates the phenomenon you're talking about. Have you, you seen know? the picture? No, I don't think I've seen the picture. I Google it, man. It just... And that, I, I don't know. That's kind of, that kind of said something to me. It's like, yo, you fell in the shower. Mm-hmm. Why even put that out there? Say, say you, you got mugged or something. Right? <laughs> just, I don't know, man. Just, it, it's comical. Like you're giving, you're feeding the meme complex to fry you. Yeah. Like I fell in the shower and you got this big ass bandage over your head the next day. Don't cancel. Keep it on the low, right? Like just yeah. wait till it heals a little bit or, you know what I mean? Just the fact that he did that. It's, I don't know. I just, I can't. I mean, there's there's an authenticity to him that I think is lacking in American politics, but I don't think that authenticity is going to win. Like that kind of visual, you know, he looks like you know somebody could be like your grandpa, your uncle, or something like that, right? But I don't know if that's enough to win an election, right? Some people might appreciate that about him, and they want a president yeah. who's not all about the flash and the pomp and all that. And that's some people that, that attracts a lot of people to Bernie. But I think for mainstream Americans and other people, the the kind of like you said, the aura you give off. It's going to matter to some extent. Yeah. That's why, like, Andrew Yang, you look yeah. at him, it's like, yo, here's a young dude, well put together, yeah. confident, hungry, about his shit, well-read. I like that. Yeah. You know? Trump, way arrogant, you know, more arrogant, but at the same time, he also projects, I mean, he's got media training for, like, I don't know how many decades now. Yeah, he's I mean, got shows, he's got five, se- you know, how many seasons of The Apprentice. He's, he's somebody who lived on the TV screen. Yeah, yeah. so he knows how to And lives in that. pop culture, Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, Americans, they said that increasingly, you know, ever since the creation of TV, American presence have had to become more, you know, photogenic and more uh, just put together, like you said. And I think I can definitely see where you're coming from when you say that, you know, that's that's an objection people might have to Bernie. I think it does hurt his chances in a real way. But like, you know, then moving on to Andrew Yang, I think. What's your take on him? That's what I'm most Andrew Yang's a guy who, once again, is great, well-spoken, but he's somebody, in my opinion, who's ahead of his time politically, Mm -hmm. right? I think the concerns you brought up, like AI, AI is just not real for most Americans yet. 100%. You know, his freedom dividend too, I think his idea that maybe might be too before it's time. It might be relevant 20 years from now. But right now, Americans are worried more about, you know, healthcare. They're worried about, um, you know, green energy. And he, you know, he kind of ties in how his freedom dividend and, you know, how his, um, you know, tech savvy will play into those issues. But we're not there yet. Yeah. Where it's going I'm with you. Yeah. That's the exact same feel that I get. It's just he signifies hope way yeah. down in the horizon, you know, way down the line. Yeah, it's but like the, the tech sector, uh, you know, <clears throat> trying to sell itself to, uh, you know, he, he exemplifies the kind, the kind of politician the tech sector would really be like. You know, yeah. somebody who understands a lot of the same things they do, same concepts, same fears. Yeah. And that's going to become increasingly the mainstream of American society. That's going to be the mainstream of how we work Maybe in the next 20 now. years. But I don't think we're there yet. I, you know? I, I, but sadly, I agree with you. Good man. that somebody's putting those ideas in the mainstream, so at least Americans are aware and yeah. thinking about them. Hopefully, I but, mean, you know. the, the, the freedom dividend that literally put UBI into the zeitgeist of, of yeah, the political just common political parlance. That's crazy. You know? It's like a new plank that could be picked up by a political Bro, party. I never time. would have imagined that UBI, you know, universal basic concept. Uh, income as a concept would mm-hmm. even be in the popular lexicon in yeah. 2020 and this guy did it like yeah. it's a win yeah like, it's, it's a win. win that idea at least people researching like yo what is yeah. a freedom dividend what is a universal basic income he put it out there now it's like a popular it went mainstream mm-hmm. because of him so 
he won. Like, yeah, whether I mean, he wins the presidency or not, he already won in a, in a really big way. And I think. I think he will be remembered no matter what as somebody who started bringing a lot of future issues to the table. Like he's going to be, excuse me, he's going to be one of those originators of a new type of political thought. Let me ask you something. Why would you not vote for Yang? I wouldn't vote for Yang personally because uh, I think the issues he's bringing up are not relevant yet. Okay. You know, to the, to the way America's governed, you know, as an executive of this country, you govern, you know, immigration, you have a massive impact on healthcare, on the military function. So yeah, maybe like, I do think China needs more attention. So maybe I'm with them there. But I think in terms of a lot of the, the current policy plans, I don't think the freedom dividend is workable as, as things stand right now. And you know, as that being I- the main, that's the main piece of his policy, A, I don't think you'd get it passed. B, I don't think it would function well right now. And see, I don't think we frankly need it yet, you know. So I, it's not something that I view as the immediate pragmatic thing for a politician to build their campaign. Universal on. basic income is another one of those things that, like seven, eight years ago or whatever, I discovered it. Maybe around 2012, <clears throat> it made a ton of sense. But I'm afraid, like as more time passed, mm-hmm. I've grown more cynical to the concept and. I'm not going to say quite flipped on it, but maybe I'm getting there. Mm. And um, there was an interview with Naval that he made a really, really good point. He said, if you pass universal basic income, then it's like a race to the bottom for socialism. Because if he's promising you a thousand, well, the next candidate is going to promise you twelve hundred. And if yeah. that one's votes, then the next one's going to do two and three. And it's, it's like, when does it stop, right? Until you go to so, all the way to socialism. Yeah, I mean, it's like the government just giving out money, right? So. And also, um, also, I don't think I'm sold on the basic premise that if you give everybody $1,000 a month, um, I don't know if it's sufficient. Maybe there is truth that, you know, if, if you alleviate people financial burden, maybe their creative self will come out. Right now, there's going to be a lot of weed that's going to be bought with that money. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of PlayStations and, and shit like that. Um, maybe that concept works, but maybe you don't need 1000 a month. Maybe it needs to be 8000 a month, mm-hmm. right? Maybe 1000 is just not sufficient to get you over that burden of like, not, yeah. What do you? I mean, you actually, know, to change somebody's position exactly. in society just or might, forward, put them forward, get over hump, yeah. amplify their current lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're into reading books, you read more books. If you're into video games, you just buy more yeah. video games or spend more time playing games. I think as an idea, it just hasn't been proven yet, and I'm I'm skeptical of launching this experiment on a nationwide scale, right? Like I'm just not sure. I think a better approach would be. Um, Free smartphones for everybody. Here's a resource, right? Uh, or free uh, 5G internet, mm-hmm. right? It's a resource you can leverage uh, however you want. But something about handing over cash to somebody and like spending some what you want, I think that might only work at a higher number. Do you know what I mean? I don't yeah. know if it, a thousand is like enough. It's like it's arbitrary. I think maybe he has calculations that no, no, prove sure why it has value. Sure, yeah, yeah. But I I completely disagree with the premise. It's like just like you said at this point that that's useful or desirable, right? Right. I think a lot more useful policy you want to give out cash is, for example, like when a kid is born and they like are born to parents of very low income bracket, you create, take like $10,000, put an account for that kid yeah. and let it 
accrue value with the market over 18 years and they're 18 they have access to that yeah imagine creating a seed fund. i think i think joe biden actually put out an idea like that mm, that's and interesting I haven't that's heard that that's hugely useful because then you are you know this kid is coming from a lower lower socioeconomic background so a you're giving a kid a stake in the markets you know everybody's been talking about you know donald trump has been saying right. the stock market's all-time mm-hmm. high but americans don't have a stake so stake in that so like even the poorest american is gonna have a stake in the stock market and these kids, when they turn 18, they have an option to use that fund for whatever they want, right? And maybe you can create a system so they don't use it irresponsibly because 18-year-old yeah. might be done with their money. But yeah. like education, I fundamentally mm-hmm. still think, is what's going to create a differentiator. For me, it's healthcare. Life, right? For me, it's, it's, it's I definitely want to see the Europe, like healthcare here. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry to be tied to a job to worry about how my son is going to mm-hmm. get his vaccines. But yeah, it's a universal but, income is a definitely, I think, maybe – Ahead of his time, I think yeah, that might be I mean, the theme. I don't need an extra thousand dollars a month. I don't want an extra thousand months from but the government. You know, personally. to be honest, though, we do live in one of the richest parts of. Yeah, well, Fairfax is definitely a bubble, but I think a lot of Americans. You know, there is uh, one study done a long time ago, an economic study, where there was this land. I, this is one I read in college, so I'm, I'm not going to have all the details straight. Yeah, but the the crux of it was that there was this land that was given out in a lottery, right? So there's a bunch of land. There's a big windfall of land. I think it was one of the southern states. And so essentially the land. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it was like acres of land that was given away as a lottery throughout the state. So random people across the state were just given land from Lots, this, this yeah. windfall, right? So middle class families that received land, I think somebody decided to study what would happen if this was done. They became richer because of the land. They knew how to either cultivate the land or invest the land or sell it properly or manage it in such a way that they create, increase their, their right. wealth permanently. Right. But poor people who are given the land ended up having no change in their circumstances like 10 yeah. years on. Right. Same so, with the lottery winning. Yeah. I have to review the study because I don't want to yeah. just be putting it out there without the specifics. But the principle is that if you're, you know, if you don't, nobody's ever taught you financial management or right. you have already 100%. have issues on how to spend money responsibly, that money, mm-hmm. extra thousand dollars a month is just going to go away like yeah, that without ever actually forwarding you. Right. You want, not just how money to exist, but we want to see forward progress around this huge. I think progress is important. Like I don't think just giving yeah. money money to people for the sake of giving money is a good idea. You want to see some kind of result from that money. Well, I think to sell the so idea. Two, two things. Something similar has been documented with lottery winnings, mm. right? You win the lottery, and if people from like a lower socioeconomic class, they end up like worse off in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Suicide even, and mm. they don't know how to handle the money. Um, Second, I think the idea is that you assume with the freedom dividend or universal basic income that um, following Pareto's principle, I mean, let's be even more more conservative, 90% of the people, maybe 95, are just going to blow that money. Yeah. But you're really counting on that 5% to take some creative chances, start up companies, and create wealth that way, which is, is not distributed the same way the, you mm. know, the money is. But I, I think that's... Anybody who thinks otherwise, I think you, that's being delusional. There's no way that a fixed amount of money is going to unlock some sort of creative endeavor that's going to translate to creating wealth for yeah. for society. That's just not realistic. A lot of people might pick up painting or sculpting and mm-hmm. maybe open an Etsy account or some shit. But the real value is somebody to use that as a safety net to take risks, create mm-hmm. a startup, right? Compete with Tesla, Snapchat, something of yeah. the sort. I think that's a general idea. I think saying a thousand dollars a month to do that though is just I don't know, think it's, it's it. a drop in the bucket of what you would need yeah, to yeah. So you know like if we're gonna think about ways to spend public money in order to push our you know lifestyle forward and 
there's just better policy right now that can be implemented. For I would that imagine. I'm not familiar, but I would imagine. It's just yeah. it sounds like it's it sounds like a good idea, but maybe it's not not baked fully. Yeah, it's it's ahead of its time, and it's it's not yeah. what Americans need right now. And I don't think it's what's going to give us a better society right now. Yeah, I have no you know, idea what they so need. Andrew Yang, I think it's good that we have, you know, America, we're all about experimentation, right? That's the yeah. crux of democracy is we're trying different things in different areas. And we have people bring up sometimes crazy ideas and that gets Americans thinking. It's That's a great thing. You know, I'm glad he's part of the process. He's put himself out there. But I do not take mm-hmm. him as somebody who is serious in 2020. You Final know? thought that just came, mm-hmm. it's uh, skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Skateboarding. When you, when you drop in at the ramp, uh-huh. it's one of those things you got to – Commit 100%. You can't half ass yeah. it. So if you go 10% of the way, you bust, you bust your ass. Mm-hmm. UBI, I think, might be something similar. It's like you either give somebody an entire you know, salary to mm-hmm. the point where they don't have to work, or you don't do it at all. And mm-hmm. maybe we get to a point where AI and automation creates enough wealth that you can yeah, redistribute it in such a radical way that everybody can get 60K a year or something because industries are exploding in Mars. and mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe then... If you didn't have to worry about rent, that's something I'm interested in. Like, what if people just did not have this financial burden of providing a roof over their head? Then maybe actually, yeah, maybe people would really go on the limb and really pursue some crazy ideas. But 10% feels like you're you're hesitant. You're not going all the way in on the ramp and you're going to bust your ass. So maybe that's it, man. I don't know. It's just my philosophy, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, I always think about in terms of what it actually looked like as a policy, in terms of debt and borrowing and fiscal. Yeah, that's all you know, you there, yeah. And, uh, you know, administratively, it's a nightmare. And I didn't want to yeah. think about, like, how it actually look in implementation because it's just a, such a difficult thing to do. I just know? assume it's going to be implemented, right, <laughs> yeah. perfectly. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like how you stress test an idea. Like, yeah. let's, let's assume it gets executed. But I don't know. We'll see. I'm always just really skeptical of Biggie. I'm very much about piecemeal, you know, changing and maybe – you start with, you know, just giving uh, additional chunk of cash every month to poor people, right. you know, and then we see where that goes. Then we adjust on there. But I'm very skeptical of this a sweeping idea, like UBI, you know, yeah. and it's, it's wholeness. It just shouldn't ever be implemented like that. Right. Maybe step by step we can get there and it's something we can start talking about. There's going to be a conversation about it. But it's just a, it's a half-baked idea yeah. in my opinion. And But Andrew Yang, I do agree, he's a polished dude, smart dude. Uh, you know, great with the memes, great with kind of connecting with the internet and, uh, you know, kind of the culture, especially people our age. But uh, he, he's not, his time hasn't come yet. Here's something else that worries me about the presidential cycles, man. Mm. It started with uh, Alex Jones. Mm. So before Trump became president, uh, he was cool, it seems, with Alex Jones. And Alex Jones is a media behemoth. Mm-hmm. He runs Infowars, which is or was I don't know if the currently because they banned him. Facebook, Apple, they all cut down his podcast. They don't feature it anymore. At one point in time, he was a fucking giant in the media landscape. He had I don't know how many what the numbers are, but he was dwarfing CNN and Fox and all these other conventional news stations. So here you have um, you have Alex Jones, who has his personal connection with with Trump. Mm-hmm. And uh, this broader trend that I'm observing is uh, moving from macro. So actually, yeah. So if I were to look back on the past decade, one trend that I've observed is this move from macro mm-hmm. to micro, from big, the big being broken down into smaller pieces. So we've seen that with media. 
right? Like back in the day, 20 years ago, you had CNN and Fox. Now you yeah. have Joe Rogan, you have the H3 podcasts, right? Like these- it's become fragmented, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's this micro-influencers now, right? Yeah. And um, I'm seeing that with, I mean, even, even this podcast, right? Here's mm-hmm. a three-hour conversation that is eventually going to be broken down into eight little snippets mm-hmm. you could listen to individually. Like um, I think actually on a, on a side note, I think that's why probably- um, TV shows have become so popular because like it's the best of both worlds. A micro episode of 30 minutes over the course of four years and you've got this, you've consumed this massive piece of uh, content that you, yeah. there's no other way to do it, right? So I'm seeing this trend and um, it's something that worries me because I recently started watching the H3 podcast with Ethan and Hilda or something. I'm probably mispronouncing her names. Um, it's okay. It's, it's interesting. But she mentioned, one of the hosts, they're a married couple, she mentioned that um, they had Andrew Yang on there, and she mentioned uh, a- AOC, the congresswoman, mm, yeah. just tweeted me to congratulate my birthday. And um, to me, that's kind of shocking, because if I were to fast forward seven, eight years, the H3 podcast, Joe Rogan, uh, maybe Infowars, these are going to be the new media agencies. And in the past, you know, at least there's this this facade of them being neutral to, to you know to an extent, right? But now they have these personal relationships, right? Like yeah. Trump and Jones, AOC with the H three, and, and that is kind of like a worrying trend to me. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is almost like a new kind of tribalism, right? Yeah, like and these people like, are like, you know, this is our community, and everybody in this community is right, and everybody else is wrong, and you know we're kind of like an embattled community almost. That like our ideas are not, they're different from the mainstream. And we got to protect them, you know, against the mainstream, right? I think that's that's a lot of the appeal I see, of you know, whether it's somebody like AOC, for example, that you just sometimes can't have a conversation with like the hardcore fans because it's not about the rationality of the conversation. It's, it's about like their loyalty to whatever ideas they decide to commit themselves. It's an identity, to. yeah. It's a yeah, social it's, identity. It's an identity. So if you are trying to have a conversation, you're attacking their identity, right? And that's that's what's hmm. to me is really concerning about this whole microization of things. There's kind of micro influencer um, is that when you kind of have a breakdown of what's mainstream and what's you know kind of shared across society, then how are you supposed to work with you know people that just have a completely different view than you? Like, how can I talk to somebody who goes on Alex Jones and believes like the government is leaving chemtrails right. in the air? And say, actually, you know, I think airplanes just burning exhaust, right? Yeah. It's not a concern. They're like, no, like they're they're dropping chemicals on us, like right up there. That's like two very different worldviews that like a lot of different implications, right? And like, how can I have a rational conversation with that kind of thing? You know, that's it is concerning. Well, I'm like, guessing in the future, is one take might be just things going into hyperdrive, meaning Fox News is right wing. They're not mm-hmm. really hiding it. Well. The next logical step is you have a podcaster who is hyper one candidate, maybe Trump mm-hmm. administration. He's not hiding it either. And maybe one candidate will do like eight different interviews with the top podcasters, right? Because they're really positioning themselves to be the next wave of, I mean, dude, Joe Rogan is this generation's Larry King. Yeah. He's probably doing numbers that Larry King probably never did in his career. Oh, yeah. I mean, Joe Rogan is it's unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of crazy because this type of power goes unchecked in a lot of ways. Like, he's not reporting to any journalistic standard. He's not adhering yeah. to any guidelines by any organization. He wakes up, smokes some weed, and it's like, yo, what are we talking about with you, <laughs> man? Yeah, what questions he decides to ask. There's no – doesn't need a balance It's them. incredible yeah. that you could achieve that with a microphone and an internet connection. But at uh-huh. the same time, when you get that level of success, it becomes – 
fucking scary. Yeah. And I think, you know, at, at one point in this conversation, you mentioned the breakdown of institutions. I think we, we might have talked a little bit about that. I think that's what we're seeing here is that like what has kept humans in check is we create institutions, right? They're not relying on one personality or one person. Like we all have these common you know institutions to subscribe to. Yeah. When I don't know what's true, I know who to turn to. And I feel like, yeah, Eric Weinstein talks about this a lot. Mm-hmm. The breakdown of, of institutions to the point where the normal person does not know where to turn for truth anymore. Because yeah, you know, so they turn to a person. Like, so if you turn to institution, institutions, because they're made to outlast people, right. they create bylaws to govern themselves. They create standards. They create, you know, a set of moral values, right? Like New York, you know, a great example, I think Eric Weinstein has talked about is like New York Times, right? Oh, yeah. You know, journalistic a- standards. They got the nice New York mm-hmm. Times, you know, the calligraphy, whatever. And uh, all that's supposed to inspire confidence. And it used to because right. like, you know, but then the one mistake they make or they make some mistake or they, they go against Slowly some like strong worldview you once had, mm-hmm. they go against all of a sudden. And yeah, it starts eroding. You stop trusting so you start looking for somebody else. Which are individuals. Yeah. Which are getting personal happy birthday on Twitter from the people they're interviewing. Yeah. Somebody's right? going to personally talk about the issues you want. They're like your friend, you know. Not only are well, they are friends. Like, yeah. Alex Jones and Trump are probably at some point in time are friends. AOC and the H3, uh, it seems like, I don't know if they're friends, but I mean, it's like a couple steps away from that. If you're happy birthdaying each other, like that's, that's not, that's <laughs> really far from an institutional uh yeah i mean it's there's no objectivism whatsoever i mean they can just throw you softballs and go down hard on somebody else right there's like you know that's what's concerning too about netflix you know netflix now is creating all this content micro content you know from all these independent um you know news or not news i shouldn't say these different like movie or documentary uh outfits that are creating you know new shows and all that and they might create documentaries that you know portray a completely one-sided you yeah, know yeah. point of view that don't adhere to any journalistic values or YouTube documentary, right? There's some documentary that can make itself same production values, professional documentary, oh, yeah. you know, great camera work, great transitions, everything well scripted, but they can just not have any kind of rules to the kind of information it's portraying yeah. that lets you know that's objective. So right then it just yeah. comes down to whether you like them or not. If you're some good-looking person it's or dangerous. somebody who's very personable. Or like somebody like Joe Rogan, who's a nice, chill dude, who's good at asking questions. Joe Rogan's not a journalist. He's just a guy no, who's no, like, you know, like you say, smoke weed, do MMA, right? Cool dude. I like yeah, him. Yeah, it's, it's, you kind of like naturally like him. The way he asks questions is very non-confrontational. Yeah. He is like very naturally curious dude. But he is not held to any standard. And none yeah, of these people no are. holding him, yeah. But yet. It's funny because <laughs> the only standard that he's held against is YouTube's guidelines. Yeah. And they're very differently aligned than journalistic guidelines mm-hmm. or monetary monetization guidelines. Don't have copywritten music in your podcast because we yeah. demonetize you. So it's interesting that he's tap dancing to YouTube's beat, which is just monetization, right? It's, it's yeah. more le- legality than it is. Or even, even the president is a great example. Is like before a president could only get out his message through the media, right? The now, media was the gatekeeper to communication with the people. So therefore the president had to create a relationship with the media and also to some extent be held accountable by the media. Like, you know, if a president is always doing such things that journalists doesn't like, they could say, okay, well, we're going to stop reporting you the way you want to be portrayed to the people, right? Or you want to get this policy out? Well, you better give us, you know, the, throw us the a media too. was the institution. Yeah, they, they were just like Congress in a sense. Right. They were like um, a control, you know. Well, that's why they have so much constitutional power, right? Freedom of the press is yeah. a thing. Yeah, and they, they essentially, you know, in America, we kind of believe in this pluralism where everything's balancing each other out. The media was a huge control on the president or any politician because 
they were a critical part to getting the message out. But now you got a president who can tweet or go on Facebook and talk directly to people without having to worry about what the media thinks about anything. And that's, you know, not necessarily a terrible thing because then like the media, who's to say they're good actors anyway? Like yeah, yeah. they have anybody's best interest in mind. They could be self-interested as well. But at least there was more people. There were more stakeholders. And when you have more stakeholders, you usually have better outcomes because you have more opinions in the mix, right? Here's a problem that I think there was a shift that happened somewhere mm-hmm. along the way that was uh, influenced by technology. And that is the business model changed, mm. right? When you went from uh, or to clicks, mm-hmm. paying and for ads and stuff. Yeah, the ad-based that, uh, model. That business model skewed uh the behavior of the media because now it's sensationalism wins right yeah like if being first to the punch uh with f- false information oh yeah could be more monetarily uh advantageous than not reporting with something at all which is what you probably should do if you can't yeah. verify you just don't report it but um that's what i think needs to be fixed man um there's been a massive breakdown in quality yeah even in, even in mainstream media cnn i go on there and i see headlines that sound ridiculous. And when you read the actual article, you realize, okay, it's actually not that ridiculous. The headline is just ridiculous. Yeah. But they need to get the click. They need the initial click. We need, we need a different business model, man. I, th- I think that's where things uh, went south is the business model. Mm. I, I don't know how you solve it, but it seems like, uh, I don't know, I mean, do you move to a nonprofit? Who knows? I, I don't know. But as long as there is a for-profit pro, for motive in objectivism, uh, it reminds me of that quote. It's it's hard to convince a man of something whose salary depends on him not understanding it or something. Yeah, something along those lines. I forgot who the quote. Well, is like by. there's Wikipedia, for example, right? That's non-ad based and has managed to maintain that. They actually donate regularly Donation, to Wikipedia. Yeah, I do too. I haven't this year. Because uh, you know, it's a phenomenal thing to know yeah. that this website is purely a bunch of contributors yeah. of all different stripes. Excuse me. Who all are kind of you know by collaborating and sometimes clashing create a full view of different things in the world, right? Like if you're talking about political candidate, nobody on Wikipedia can you know expunge information about Donald Trump because there's going to be somebody who's anti-Trump and going to make sure it gets yeah. on there. Yeah, so Checks it creates balances, yeah, it's fine. it creates a pluralism that's not monetary based. It's solely based off people trying to get towards the truth on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. And by portraying all different sides of a thing, and that's when you really do get to the truth is because there always are different ways to approach what's what's true and what's not. And when you have a pluralism of ideas yeah. and you have that full view, then you can make an objective determination. But like you said, that clickbait model, it's not about it's what is, it's not trying to get truth, it's about trying to get attention, attention. right? Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's scary. I mean, that's something that we have to legislate I think, uh, you know, I don't believe in legislating free speech. I think free speech is important. A marketplace of ideas is important. But there has to be a way to hold people to account for what they say. And there has to be responsibility and some kind of adherence to values and ethics. And that's always very easy to say on paper. Like, you know, throughout history, people say we need to have better ethics, better morals, yeah, yeah. et cetera. But very easy to say. But how do you do that? Maintaining free speech and not infringing on people's right to express themselves while still making sure there is a standard, especially for these influencers, that they're not just, you know, misleading it's crazy, people. man. Yeah. It's just people with a mic and an internet connection with no, I mean, there's, they're not being held accountable for anything yeah. outside of uh, infringing rights on YouTube videos. And, you know, uh, some of these guys are more mainstream, you know, like Joe Rogan is, I would say, pretty mainstream yeah. in America now. And he's, he's, you know, he's mostly harmless. He does a good job. But when you have something like Alex Jones, like some of this information they put out can really yeah. mess, mess with people, mess with their lifestyles. Or, you know, Alex Jones, yeah. he's, he's a predatory dude, in my opinion. Like, you know, this guy 
promotes these ideas, these supplements that you need, you know, because of whatever, you know, pseudoscience he's, yeah. he's picked Joe up Rogan for the week. Joe does too, to be fair. Mm. He promotes yeah. neuro- neurotropics yeah, I mean, for performance. This and- is all pseudoscience that once again, uh, objectively, if you ask your doctor, they'll be like, well, yeah. there may be some medical evidence, right. but there's nothing concrete. But because this yeah. person that you trust as an authority is telling it to you, they're they're enriching themselves. And it's just, uh, there's something very exploitative about that. That's a whole other issue, I that, guess. That is, yeah. You know, and uh, it's something that, you know, so politicians like AOC or Trump, that too has to be controlled, man. Because like populism is is a dangerous thing. And being able to speak directly, you know, people are unreliable as individuals, I would say. And that's why throughout history, we've tried to create institutions that transcend the, unreliabi- the unreliabilities or kind of uh, mm. sometimes unstable aspects of individuals. There are, of course, very stable individuals out there. But a lot of people, especially who tend to trend to become powerful, have instabilities. When you're a powerful person that has certain instabilities in their personality or certain biases or whatever, you can create a lot of damage in people's lives. Yeah. There has to be a way to mediate that. And what institutions are what are supposed to mediate that by creating institutional controls on people. And we're seeing a breakdown of that. I, and I think that's why we just got we got to switch into the 21st century, man. You know, we yeah. need we need a 21st century system. We're still a 20th century. We're a 20th century system with 21st century uh, problems. You know, intuitively, I feel like the blockchain might play. Uh, really important role in solving this mm-hmm. but i'm not even sure how yet just some loose ideas that i've been uh teasing out of my mind but i think it's going to be piecemeal you know yeah. like in europe now they're starting to pass some privacy laws they're starting to put some some things in place in the u.s too now like you know youtube introducing community standards it's going to be a process right it's going to slowly build on itself but I, th- I think people are starting to talk about it and that you know us talking about it right here yeah yeah it's important because for, for a lot of people and i think also sometimes we we can be alarmist about it because there's all these communities that exist that are, you know, mostly more marginal people. But like you said, because they have the internet, they've got a larger voice than they previously would have had. And uh, that, that's what happens on Twitter, man. Mm-hmm. I think when this cancel culture, mm-hmm. oh, it's ridiculous. a handful of people that are like a percent of a percent of the population. They yeah. just happen to be screaming the loudest. That's it. Yeah, it's the loudest person who screams. And that's what's scary, though, is like sometimes the loudest person yeah. who screams can get undue influence just because they're able to scream loud. You know, that's what, what scares you about society. You know, we we have enough historical, you know, like if you, if you go back to Nazism in Germany, I don't think most Germans were Nazis or even agree with Nazism. Yeah. But because you had a small, well-organized, dangerous, you know, group of people, they're able to push everybody else behind them and kind of keep them in line. So we do, we always have to be careful and be, you know, never, never take it for granted. That can't happen again. Yeah. So we got to be vigilant. And these kind of influencers, they're the kind of people that can drum up the complete wrong kind of, you know, anti-vaxxers are a great example. Flatter. That whole community. Yeah. I mean, anti-vaxxers, there's a tangible danger to the rest of us from, for sure. you know, people not having yeah. vaccines. Yeah. You have a young child now, you know, yeah. flatter goes, is a, uh, it's harmless in, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, it's harmless, but it, but it, anti-vaxxing is a very yeah. real threat. And even flat earthing, I mean, just that, that fundamental disbelief and like something that it's should be objectively yeah. believed in. That <laughs> brings me that brings me to my point, man. Before before you wrote up, I asked you what is uh what are some things that you've changed your your views on in the past ten years? And I say ten years because you know maybe it's appropriate the decades just ending and a new one is starting, but loosely like what what are some things that you've gone back on in the in recent history off the top so i think intellectually speaking intellectually uh definitely like uh the way globalization international trade works you know the way we talked about it there i think uh coming into the decade i was very much you know a believer that you know i took my economics class in high school and thought oh man free markets 
you know, our absolute, we should break down trade barriers as fast as possible, make everything as efficient as possible. But you have to start realizing, especially as you get older, that there's more to things than just maximum market, you know, productivity, right? You have to take into account, like, you know, for example, when we started trading with China and it hollowed out, you know, America's industrial centers, everybody was maybe like a thousand dollars richer and everybody had access to cheap Chinese goods. But you lost like a lot of communities lost their core. Right. right? Long, long term loss. Or yeah. Maybe I mean, not even long term, but just a different. What does one thousand dollars mean to somebody right. who is like, willing to sell off that privilege or that? Yeah. So I do think it is right to move in that direction. Like you should increasingly move to what's most efficient. Maybe more. But you costly. have to manage it, right? You gotta you gotta give yeah. people time to adjust. And sometimes even though it's not the most efficient thing, you just want people to still be able to live well. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not always about the most it's about moving towards it but move it in a piecemeal way yeah right so i'm less absolutist i would say that's definitely some know. some interesting parallels with some mm -hmm. of mine yeah I, I would say like some fundamentally it's to understand that you know humans before you know our ancestors used to change on time periods of hundreds of years right you're most likely to do what your father did in most points throughout history we realize we're, we're in an age where in a decade an entire industry could rise and fall now it seems yeah. like you know so you just got to realize that people need time to adjust and change. You got to give them a, you know, ability to catch their breath, you know, sometimes. Yeah. Even though it's not the most efficient thing to do, everybody can take a hit and not have cheap Chinese goods just to let maybe these people adjust a little bit more, you know. Anything else outside of economics? Outside of economics? Oof. Yeah, I mean, economics and politics is where my my uh, views are always changing. Well, give me a give me a subject. Where would you be looking? Just wondering, just in general. Man, what have I... Is my, have, mine are all over the place. The, the things give that me I'm example. back on... Pre prime me a little bit. I'm trying to think about... Give me, give me an example of one of yours. One of the things that I've... Um, maybe not come back around on, but my view has significantly shifted. Mm -hmm. Religion. Okay. So 10 years ago, I was way closer to the... Richard Dawkins type mm. of flavor, uh, flavor of atheism. Um, but I think over the years, um, it's hasn't changed drastically. My view on religion hasn't changed drastically, but there's some subtleties and nuances I've grown to appreciate and some of the functionality that it's, it's served as a social technology over the years. Mm. So like, are you familiar with the, the Lindy effect? No, it's a <clears throat> the Lindy effect is really a synonym for uh, standing the test of time. It mm. says that if something survived in X amount of years, it's most more likely to survive another X amount of years. Yeah. So a great example of that, mm. for example, is the Bible. Right? Bible, yeah. If we were to bet what book would survive two thousand years from now, it's probably going to be the one that survived two thousand years to this point. Right? Yeah. So it's an interesting heuristic. That uh, you know, before even learning what the name of the heuristic was, I usually use personally for a lot of my personal life when it comes to books and movies, mm. I'm always watching and reading things from like a decade or two in the past. Mm. Um, when something new comes out, the new pop science books, uh, I think a lot of people might be surprised like, oh shit, you're not up to the latest thing. And no, because the latest thing might be a trend that gets disproven and won't be around in three years. So mm. I usually give it like 10 years. Uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, I just reread it properly for the first mm. time, like, you know, Phenomenal eight, book. eight, eight yeah. months ago or something. Um, so I usually wait like 10 to 15 years and I go back to the, the books that stood the test of time. Music, kind of, kind of similar mm. in that approach. So religion obviously survived this long, right? So there, there's something there. Um, there's obviously something there from an evolutionary standpoint. 
an interesting point that um, was made by Brett Weinstein when he debated Richard Dawkins. This was two years ago or so. Mm. It was late 2018. I was actually trying to go, but I couldn't. Um, I think I might have actually gone to that one. In Chicago? One, no, I was in D.C. No, but no, I no. believe uh, it was... That, you're thinking of Eric Weinstein. Eric so Weinstein. Oh, okay. Brett Weinstein is his brother. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm confusing the two. one yeah. of the most brilliant uh, evolutionary mm-hmm. um, biologists. Mm. So... Him and Dawkins don't see eye to eye, specifically about religion. And he really pressed Dawkins on that. Um, Dawkins believes religion is a mind virus. Mm. And uh, Brett Weinstein disagreed because in his he pulled something really elegant here that I really appreciated in, in the debate, which is he weaponized one of Dawkins's pioneered theories of mm. mimetics or memes, right? And for people that are you know hip to the, the whole concept. In genetics, you have a gene, which is the smallest, you know, unit of genetic information. When it comes to memes, it's uh-huh. basically the smallest unit of an idea. So a joke mm. is a meme. That term was invented. In, it was coined by Richard Dawkins, mm. I think, in the late 80s. So Brett Weinstein flipped it on Dawkins saying, okay, well, don't you think that if religion is a, it's a series of meme, it's a meme complex, don't you think it must hold some evolutionary advantage? Mm. Which is to something that Dawkins, I think, was kind of surprised that he hit mm. him with that angle, right? Because in his mind, it's a virus, it's mindless, it doesn't make sense, it's a bunch of fables. And he, he proceeded to you know, take it further and kind of uh, entertain this, this train of thought that if you treat mimetics as not an independent entity, but as a layer on top of genetics, which mm. could, you know, hinder the evolutionary fitness of an organism, there must be something there. So that was probably like, I think the, the flipping point for me. And I was mm. like, damn. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it seems so obvious, but I think yeah. in, in Dawkins' model, genetics and mimetics are distinctly separate. And I think yeah. mimetics is like this uh, entertainment layer that's not really uh, grounded by the, it's not really affected by the evolutionary mm. process, and maybe I'm not doing him justice, but that's what that's what I got out of it. And Weinstein was like, well, "You're the one that invented it, don't you think? That layer on top of genetics influences the fitness of an organism." So he he went a little bit further, and uh, just from personal experience, man, like you know, seeing people that attend church um, now are the Bible stories, are the biblical stories, nonsense and metaphorical. Sure. Maybe, yeah, but there is a, a social the point. Yeah. There's a social function here, right? We have a community of people that believe the same thing, right? Take mm. care of, of your neighbor in times of need. They, they come together, they yeah. donate, they help people. And they marry, they, sure. Yeah. And it's, and you have to be blind and really ignorant to deny that there is some sort sort of like a social advantage to being in a religion, right? Oh, definitely. So mm-hmm. obviously that that's always been in the back of my mind. Uh-huh. But I think that paired with Brent Weinstein's attack on mimetics, yeah. uh, basically as being a standalone thing that you could just have. It's basically having a software running in a hardware that you know, and it affects the hardware's fitness of survival. Mm-hmm. So that I think really was like pushed me over the edge to be like, okay, there's something. Something here. And I don't know if it's just because it survived 2,000 years that doesn't necessarily make it correct or what have you, but it, it deserves some sort of – some level of respect, right? It brought yeah. in some of the greatest architecture, some of the greatest paintings. Art. Um, and art. Yeah. And I think that style of militant atheism, I just – I'm further on the spectrum. I'm still – 
my religion is science. I'm not, mm. that's what I would subscribe to. I still do believe in a higher power, like uh, the internet, uh, quantum mechanics. I believe in gravity, but that's my higher power. That's what I believe in. Yeah. So I'm still in that sense, maybe on the same axis, but I think I've just, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but just distanced, my, distanced myself intellectually from Dawkins, who's been like one of my, you know, idols for the longest time. That's That's fascinating. I mean, I would say that myself too, you know, I've never been, I've always had a belief that there's, you know, higher power. I would classify as like a monotheistic God. And uh, I actually would say that I was gravitating more towards organized religion a decade ago. You know, I went through a phase where, you know, especially when I learned some more about the traditions of where, you know, where I came from and, uh, you know, Afghanistan, etc. I was gravitating more towards learning about organized religion and trying to participate. I wouldn't say I'd ever, ever converted to any religion. I was raised in a pretty, you know, uh, non-religious household. And, um, but definitely that social aspect of religion was powerful. And like the ideal that, you know, also it's like the hold of your traditions. It's something that links you to your past, you know, your family history. Yeah. And a sense of tradition. And I've definitely, as I traveled more and saw how organized religion worked in practice, I saw the kind of closeness and kind of cohesiveness it created, mm. But also I saw that there was a lot of uh, falseness to it and also a lot Absolutely. of, um, you know, dogma. So I became very turned off to the idea of ever being part of organized religion. So we're kind of meeting in the middle here yeah. like from different sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I still help. believe strongly in God and I believe that there's, you know, some objective truths that are, you know, kind of uh, metaphysical in nature. But I am deeply, deeply skeptical of organized, organized religion. religion. Yeah. And being part of one, though I do recognize the benefits and comforts that come from organized religion. And sometimes mm -hmm. I even kind of envy people who like got to grow up in organized religion and you went to church and this group of people that you're close with and mutually supportive of. Cause I see like the benefits of that, you know, just in terms of like relationships. I honestly, if I was part of a church community and I was like an atheist, I'd probably just shove about it and keep you part of the church community. Cause like, yeah. it's an enjoyable thing to be a part of. Right. Like I'm not going to go sit there and like attend Bible study and talk about theology, yeah. but just like, the social experience of being close to other people, having the same set of beliefs and ways of doing things. There's, there's a comfort that comes with that. Uh, one of the realizations, man, that I use the word to self-describe myself as an atheist, mm -hmm. which I no longer would use mm -hmm. because I realized that I want to say the overwhelming majority of atheists aren't atheists in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. They have a religion. It just so happens to be called science. Mm -hmm. Um, to me, every time you, let's say, blindly place your faith in a framework of beliefs, whether it's Christianity or uh, the second law of thermodynamics, mm. you're taking the leap of faith yeah. where you can't explain everything, right? You just place faith that this process is correct or whatever, you know, as, as close as you can get to correctness in that sense, right? So if you believe in science, like that's the key word, you believe in it. Mm. You place your belief and there's a leap of faith that happens. So to me, I'm not an atheist, I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's what I subscribe to. And, and you know, God, I don't, I don't like that word either because it's very narrow and semantically mm. limiting. But like I said, I do believe in a higher power, gravity, quantum physics, um, Wi-Fi, like I can't feel it, I can't see it, it's omnipresent, it's all knowing, mm. Wikipedia is flowing through my body right now. So. I think it, God is a personal definition, but I think atheist, that title's got to go because I, people aren't atheists. To me, atheist, you know, there was a description that I read 10 years ago was uh, atheism um, 
is like the off to a TV. If Christianity and Islam yeah. are a, a TV channel, it defines itself against is off, the, yeah. turning a TV. That's not true. You're watching a different channel. You're just watching Bill Nye the yeah. Science Guy. But because, yeah, historically, it's because you're going against a norm. You know, you're defining yourself right. in opposition to that. Instead, like right. you said, it's not. It's a completely different channel. Right? So I can I, see what you mean. There. I would go. I would go to war with that that term. Mm. I, I, I'm not an atheist. I don't think atheists are atheists, and I think there's something beautiful in framing science in a religious context. I don't think it's sacrilegious. Mm. I think there is a beauty to it, man. Like. Every Sunday, maybe I don't want to go to the church. I want to go to the Apple store and worship, I don't know, the, the design of this. You know what I mean? Like there could be some sort of a social activity every Sunday at the Apple store that, I mean, they kind of do that with kids. They, they have workshops where you learn mm. coding. They have lessons where they teach kids for free, like photography, music editing. So that's something I definitely would want to see. How dope would it be to have a science religion? But not Scientology. <laughs> Scientology, like, man. That's I some other shit. That, that, that's the... That's the brilliance in marketing. Yeah, the, oh, man, the that's... best move ever made is appropriate the term science into yeah. the fucking title. There's nothing further from science, but I think it would be dope, man, to shit go to the museum of air and space and have some sort of a spiritual, you know, uh, experience there, so to speak. Not spiritual in the sense of more emotionally heightened experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, every last Sunday of the month, shut off all the lights, bring in some projectors, some fog machines, some laser, play some. You know what I mean? Like, why can't you have these? Uh, yeah, create the experiences kind of uh, that are similar, yeah. analogous to a, a church experience. That's what I want to see happen, man. I think it'd be dope as fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at you know how Catholics viewed, you know, I always used to question why did Catholics build these you know really grand cathedrals, right, with all these aesthetics why are we building and art? SpaceX. Yeah, <laughs> it's because also you know yeah. when people would come and appreciate the beauty of the cathedral, it would uplift mm -hmm. them, right? And that was kind of a shared spiritual experience, is you know being in this incredible place that almost seems unearthly. Yeah. So I think that if there was to be a religion based around, like you said, you know, science or, you know, rationalism or something like that, I think that that's, that's probably going to see in the future some religious communities forming in that direction because I think people want that shared social experience, exactly. shared sense but, of awe and connection. Why, you know, we shouldn't be forced to bond over an ideology that we don't necessarily share. Like mm -hmm. science is more broader, I, I would argue, right, than any other individual yeah. religion. And, uh, or you could have a religious person who believes and goes to church but comes to the science thing after. I mean, why I not? Mean, they're, <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're not Absolutely. mutually exclusive. They should yeah. be welcomed, right? Like everyone yeah. should be welcomed. But um, it's just for people that, that have a different taste of what a religion should be. I think there's this a huge opportunity, maybe even a business. But a lot of people that I talked to from the previous generation, they told me that the moon landing – it's essentially the equivalent of a cathedral is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's yeah. to inspire the generation to dream bigger. It's not so practical. Like, what's the practicality, There was no practical right? value. It was the ideological value. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it, it makes you feel like humanity can achieve anything the same way standing in the, the Pantheon, you know, a thousand years yeah, ago, yeah. five hundred years or, ago. Know, looking feet. up the arches of Notre Dame, you know, you feel a certain type of way or, you know, yeah. I mean, certain mm -hmm. cathedrals I've walked to in France, I've just been blown away by. And yeah, I can, yeah. I can understand why you would feel you know it's almost like holy reverent about yeah, it you yeah know, it's that, great man it's great but that that's one thing that uh for sure that came to mind the top of the list and uh the funny thing is that it took science for me to appreciate religion mm. it's not until i analyze it from an evolutionary <laughs> standpoint uh that i i got more appreciation out of it i feel like um that's fascinating i mean that's that's a great example of a you know pretty well thought out way that you know you've changed over the decade and i think it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people go through that, you know, 
I think we had this attraction to very single-minded, clean ideas when we were younger. Yeah. When we realized as we get older that things are more complicated more complicated and interconnected, I would that, say. That's 100 percent that you, know. you nailed it. And another <clears throat> function of religion that I do like is that <clears throat> a lot of times it is an anchor to progress, right? Mm-hmm. With Galileo and you know, they burned some scientists in, at the cross and whatnot. But I think in, in this day and age it does serve as a a sanctuary for certain traditions mm-hmm. and certain beliefs of family fabric, the you know the nuclear family. Yeah. In a day and age where, especially in fucking America, um, people are attacking that structure. Yeah. It's not even a bad thing, mm-hmm. but it's definitely uh, something that is happening really fast. And they almost have. I group all of. The maybe I don't know if this should be the left or what to call them, but it's almost like a militant approach. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the enemy. We are correct. You're wrong. And I don't think that was the right approach, right? Yeah. I think you should be able to choose. And I think with the left lately, in the past maybe five years, I've seen this change where um, it's very militant. Mm-hmm. Antifa, right? That's supposed to be a leftist. Dude, yeah. they're turning to fucking violence. Yeah. You know, I don't want to hear Milo Yiannopoulos speak, so we're going to fucking riot and not let him come talk to us because mm. we want to censor him. Like censorship, uh, militant militant approach, uh, I don't like. And it seems like religion is serving as like kind of like this this safety zone. And I see why people, especially this day and age, would gravitate to that. Yeah, I mean, I can say from my own experience, you know, for example, like, so my mom, on my mom's side, we're, we're Catholics, right? And when I go to France, we have, you know, the same village where my, my grandpa came from, you know, our family's been there for hundreds of years. I can go to that cathedral and see, like, the name of my family written wow. on the church, right? That's crazy. And now, once again, it's talking about why religion's always attracted me. It's like, I've always, I'm somebody who loves history. Yeah. I love culture. I love different, understanding different cultures. And religion to me has always been a way of linking back to the same things that your, you know, grandparents and great grandparents believed, right? And I think that's in America too, you know, it's this way of life that a lot of people they they enjoyed good lives, you know, living the way they were. You know, they had these these churches they went to on Sundays, yeah. they had their communities, and all of a sudden all these new ideas are coming up, they're right. threatening them. And it's not even about for them, it's about finding something that's solid and kind of in this world that's changing so quickly. Yeah, that's the thing. It's quickly. Un, it's, it's unchangeable. Quickly. Yeah. yeah, just like we're talking about with trade, you know, like communities yeah. that got completely gutted by, you know, the globalization of markets. It just happens so quickly. Your head is spinning, you know, wondering uh, where did my entire thing in my life was the, the built on The social justice warrior movement and, you know, like... That yeah, you have these, like, you know, people weird. coming off college campuses that are... And now I remember who I was when I was 18 and I was giving all these, you know, ideas about a free market... I was like, yeah, you know, the government's creating inefficiencies. You, gassed, you know, I was I was up. libertarian, very libertarian leaning. Yeah, and I realize now that's just because I lacked the experience and wisdom and the the nuance. Yeah, to the idea that of nuance are more interconnected. Yeah, it's just like, oh, you know, society is is just bad because you know people right. don't know about everybody knows about these ideas. That's a simple narrative. Yeah, it's yeah, like, like it's, you know, we look at politicians like, oh, they're not doing that because they have some people like attach nefarious mm-hmm. motives to the fact right. that we don't have like this perfect society. Right, time is a lot more complicated than that. It's just the fact that things are very there's competing interests, there's different people, different personalities, just all these different things going on, and. People just want to believe in a very uh, clean view of things. So it's just not clean. I call that the Malcolm Gladwell 
effect. Oh yeah, he's, he's that's a great he example. I mean, I'm not knocking him by the way. Because I, I knock him sometimes. He, I do too, but not entirely because, mm-hmm. like you know, his anecdotal. It's really hard to narrow down this mega complicated phenomenon down to a simplified narrative. I'll give you that, but you lose a lot of resolution in doing that. Yeah. And sometimes that could be dangerous because it paints things in a nice frame when, in fact, they aren't. Anybody who gives you a nice, neat framework for everything, you should be very skeptical of. Leads me to my second one. <laughs> Leads me to my second um, view that I've gone back on. Mm-hmm. GMOs. GMOs. Interesting. Um, the argument I heard was 10 years ago, it's not natural. How can you consume something? First of all, if this day and age, you hold that argument. That's what you're full of shit. Mm. Uh, listening to a podcast and having iPhones with three cameras, that's not natural either, right? So appealing to nature, that fallacy, that's out the window. Mm. Um, I still think GMOs can save the world in a lot of ways, right? We can have crops that are super efficient, provide vitamins in populations mm. that are deficient in those, vitamin, um, in those uh, vitamins. However, the speed of change is what convinced me. And ironically, man, Brett Weinstein's wife. Uh-huh. Heather Hayes, I can't pronounce her last name. She had an interview uh, with uh, Ruben. She was on the Ruben Report, and she mentioned something. She's a professor of biology, I believe. Mm. She mentioned how she feeds her kids meat, uh, animals that have been fed on the same food that the animal's parents ate. Interesting. And when she said that, like I really crossed it with... Uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. And, and there I learned the concept of uh, EES or Evolutionary Stable Strategies, mm-hmm. um, ESS. And her point was that being able to play with the genes of an organism, mm-hmm. whether it's a plant or a human, that's great. There's potentially some really incredible things we could do. But there's a cascading effect which you don't always know up front mm-hmm. and you can't really predict. So it really speaks to like slowing down things and not rushing into these things, yeah. right? Because GMOs are great, but I'm going to give you another example in that same realm, the same realm of health. Soylent, the drink. Mm. Um, I was one of the first people, and so I loved it, right? Like it's a concept. Here's this drink mm. that houses 5% of your daily nutritional values. It has all the protein, uh, vitamins, mm. minerals. If you drink five of those, in theory, your body would consume Hundred percent of the daily requirements that you need to to, mm. to consume. So in theory, you can just drink five a day and not have a gram of food, and you're fine. Theoretically, on paper, that sounds good, but you have to start thinking a bit further. Like, if I drink, my body's my stomach is no longer digesting food. Mm. What if digestion plays a crucial part yeah. in your organism's way of sustaining and or something we can't even secondary predict. tertiary you effects. know effects? Yeah, and I think GMOs really sums up my, my fears really summed up in the secondary effects and, mm-hmm. and, and such that we don't know what that means for the ecosystem because one change evolution is slow for a reason it tends to yeah. it tends it, it tends to love innovation that is slow and stable it kind of evolves to stability right? of years hundreds of thousands of years yeah like right? following like a Nash equilibrium or something like uh-huh. it's always trying to stabilize things and here we can destabilize an ecosystem with altering one gene of one species can yeah. fucking have a lasting effect so that's something i've gone back on i used to be very bullish on those like oh fuck yeah gmo we could change i still think that's a phenomenal thing but just with age maybe comes a bit more wisdom to to slow it down a little bit 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many great examples of how, you know, the story I always like to go back to, and this one, you know, is made to Hollywood, but there's a story from Afghanistan that there was a, you know, village that was about five miles away from any water source, right? So, you know, contractors going in, you know, ask the first aid, say, let's build a pipe to, you know, connect the reservoir nearby to the village, right? So they connect the pipe to the village, you know, all of a sudden a five mile walk is saved, but it comes out, somebody keeps sabotaging the pipe. So like, who's sabotaging this pipe? It must be local insurgents, something like that. Hmm. And then they come to realize it was the woman of the village sabotaging the pipe because their only chance to get out of the house and socialize with each other was walking to get water every day. So that five mile walk was their chance to come together, get out of their houses, not be around their husbands and just walk and be together and, you know, share community with each other. Right. So you have this, you know, primary effect that looks great on yeah. paper. You're saving the villagers a five mile there's walk. Always. But then there's, you know, your women are going to be housebound. This super, you know, conservative community doesn't allow women to, to move around. It's funny because right? when Amazon <laughs> Prime came in and they started delivering groceries, I was telling my dad, I was like, yo, use my account. You can have them delivered. I was, I mean, I was hyped. It was like, yo, two hours, one hour delivery, you get groceries. He looked at me. He's like, "Man, you're trying to take away the one pleasure I have on weekends. Like, just get out of the house. Like, you're trying to eliminate it, right? Yeah. So it's very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this, this, and this drive for you know efficiency and everything. That's where I've changed too, probably. Because I used to be all about that drive for efficiency. Like, why are we doing things in the best way possible, right? And you realize there's a lot of loss in translation. Like, if we lose yeah. all like storefronts, like going shopping. We've talked about this before. Like, I worked at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. I like Barnes Noble as a store, not just because, you know, I could obviously go on Amazon and get any book in the world to my house in like two days now, but I enjoy going to Barnes Noble. It's a socialization yeah. spot, man. Now Looking at the spots, step out. grabbing a cup of coffee, sitting and, you know, going through a book a little bit and deciding if I want to buy it. I just enjoy that, yeah, that know, experience. This whole sensory experience. I'm really right? sad my kids won't get to experience Toys R Us, for example. Yeah. Right? That was, a, I mean, that was a phenomenal experience coming to the U.S., moving here. Man, that was one of the first stores that blew my mind away. It's just like miles. It seemed like it was miles and miles of toys. Yeah. I mean, and also, it's, it's on Amazon. It's quicker. It's cheaper. But you're losing something, you know, visceral. Yeah, I remember Toys R Us too, you know, you could go like grab one of the NASCAR remotes and race it around the store a little bit or something yeah. like that. Or like try out bikes. Yeah, you know, just like shoot some interact moves. and see other kids playing too. I mean, there's so many examples of like that's just getting getting lost, you know, it's getting eviscerated because, you know, the the economics don't yeah. work for those stores. In the but, name of efficiency. Yeah, but something's definitely lost in translation. On the subject of efficiency, economic efficiency, when you play that to its logical extreme mm -hmm. right what does that future look like it looks like you sitting in your house your google home or whatever predicting every single impulse you have pre-ordering things for you at the right time it you know the, the algorithms can predict mm -hmm. your taste meals are getting delivered um someone's emailing you gmail is like pre answering right like it has like pre-canned re replies yeah. you see that feature right on, on or gmail? yeah now with uh, yeah gmail LinkedIn, yeah you LinkedIn hit tab it and yeah it fills it out for you yeah so it's like well uh mason sent you this two sentence reply how do you want to answer choose one of the three a b or c and then over time i'm sure you can probably even figure that out so what does that future look like if you just literally optimize everything like it goes against we're optimizing into like some parts of the human condition that it's counterintuitive for well-being yeah and health even I think that's exactly what you're saying is it, it creates a system that's inhuman. You know, it's inhuman system. Economically, though. Yeah. I mean, economically, yeah. And you're going to have... to the principle. So, like, there's some point, right? So, I guess there must be some point in the free market and the, the race to efficiency and to the human condition. It seems like they're not aligned. Yeah. Perfectly. 
Right. And I think that's, you know, a great example. And you just, you just prime me for like one of the other things that's changed over the last decade is like, you know, in the rush for efficiency, like what's, what's lost, right? That's valuable. Like if you want to, uh, you know, you find there's a beautiful mountain next to a town and you realize there's a lot of valuable coal under it and you decide to tear down the mountain for coal, that mountain's gone forever, right? You just lost, you know, something mm-hmm. that for the sake of efficiency and getting the power from that coal, yeah. it was good in the moment and that maximized efficiency and gave electricity to, you know, made millions of other people down the coast, but you have something that's lost forever, right? And I think that's what you're... Well, Soylent has, a, you know, a lot of a lot of the critics of Soylent had a really good example too, mm-hmm. which actually wasn't that good of an example. It was a decent one. <clears throat> Drinking Soylent robs you of the social exper- experience of enjoying food and sitting down and yeah, having a glass. I of wine. get the sentiment, although like I viewed Soylent as a snack in clutch situations when you really don't have time to go mm-hmm. and socialize. You need some some energy. So that argument was half baked, but I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. It's like there's something inhuman of just like. IVing yourself fucking in, uh, ingredients that are sustaining you, right? When yeah. you can break bread with your friends, laugh, have some wine, that's being lost. I mean, you right? know that you know that uh, movie Wally, the yeah. Disney movie, it's yeah. got fat people sitting in those chairs moving them around and they're just, you know, entertained all day, they're fine, they're comfortable. But what kind of yeah. life is that? Like, you know, what what makes that life interesting or yeah. you know, enjoyable? And that's, I think, uh, what we have to consider as we kind of reach this point in our history where like we have this like I've tried your AI. Well, I haven't tried your AI, AI headset. I'm uh, not AI. The VR. VR headset. Yeah. I've tried Chris's, uh, the one that uh, the mm, Oculus one that really Facebook good. made. And um, yeah, just, you know, why should I even travel when I just yeah. go in there and go see all the sites of the world and all that? But there's something lost, right? There's, a, yeah, there's like the opportunity this. to go on a trip and like be in a place and like for something to go wrong and create a story out of it. Yeah. Or just to be there and something random and unexpected to happen is what makes life interesting. Right, it's the ability to uh, experience life that's not clear cut and not just so, like you said, the kind of thing you're uh, talking about, where everything is algorithm based. That's such a boring existence, man. Here's my fear. Here's my fear. Um, I have a story. Actually, I made a video mm-hmm. about this once. Um, I was in Barnes and Nobles in Fair Lakes, mm-hmm. and um, I was, I think, with Chuck, Bert. I was like with two, three people. We we're just kicking it. I was going through the aisles. <clears throat> And on some shit out of a movie, I turn around, like, around the corner, and, like, face level is this little black book staring at me in the face called Obfuscation. Hmm. Picked it up. Incredibly fascinating take on privacy and how to solve it. That book actually inspired me to, to finish the X-key concept I had, which mm-hmm. I actually emailed to the author, Finn Brunton, and he loved it. And he said he's going to keep it on the list. And I'm actually going to get him on here, I hope, s- sometime soon. And... That serendipitous encounter with the book led to me inspiring me to finish a project, linking with the author, yeah. hopefully forming some sort of relationship. He's an incredible guy. He's on Wired explaining uh, blockchains. You know those uh, explain to a first grader, a high schooler. Yeah. He's on those. Oh, wow. So you can, you can see Finn Brunton on there. Uh, hopefully I can get him on here. Um, if I was at home and if I was on the Apple bookstore, what if the algorithm never recommended that book to me? Yeah. So I have this fear of if I never step out to a bookstore, I'm literally placing my faith of discovery and serendipity in the hands of Apple's algorithm. Yeah. And they recommend books to me that they think I'll like. 
which is really dangerous, reinforces right? Reinforces your preferences. My preferences. Yeah. So every once in a while, I love going to uh, that store out in Manassas, McKay's. Yeah, we got to go back there. That's a great Yo, story. Yeah. You know what I love about that secondhand store? bookstore? Yeah, I think it was beautiful. You know what I love about that bookstore? Mm. There's no organizational system past categories. Yeah. You go in there, hey man, I'm looking for this book. Uh, try to find it. If it's in there, it's in there. If it's not, it's not. I love that, man. In a day and age where everything is categorized and everything is hyper-organized and you can get everything, there's some beauty to just like, dude, I don't know what we have, man. Go yeah. check it out. And just the satisfaction of sifting through a stack and of books and something. finding a gem. The well, excitement. and I found some incredible mm. two books come to mind, uh, design-related, that otherwise, honestly, they're technical books. One of them is technical. Uh, it's on, on cognitive science and design. Normal bookstores don't carry that book. Mm. No bookstore has that book. I haven't even checked on the Apple store. I'm sure it's on there. But if I hadn't gone there, there's no way I would have found it. And that scares me. It's like I have to actively, proactively go Mm. and find shit to almost rebel against the algorithms. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And when the case goes out of of business, what do we do? I was talking – the last episode I did with Chuck, him and I went to Prague. The bookshop in Prague looked like the bookshop down the street. Yep. That's the other problem. Like that diversity of ideas, it's like everything is being industrialized. It's like yep. Malcolm Gladwell, you have, uh, you know, the top pop science books. Yep. Uh, man, and that's globalization, really you know, yeah. Man. That's going really disappointing. to Paris, France and seeing a Big Mac or something like that. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's losing that appeal. There's a story I tell when I was in LA one time and I went to Zara and I got some fly ass jacket. I was like, you know, I was gassed up. I come back in the airport in Reagan. Yeah. I'm going down the escalator. The dude's rocking the same jacket. And that's when it hit me. This was 2014 or 13 or 12. And that's when it hit me. I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Being unique, like not even being unique, just having access to unique goods. It's like a thing of the past. That's what I love so much about Bulgaria. Back home, we have these little, they're not even boutique. They're moms and pop shops that are, you know, four feet wide. Whatever they have at the time. That's it. They That's have what you get. Seven yep. jackets. They sell out, and they go to Turkey to re up. Mm-hmm. They pick up whatever turkey you had at the time at the the factories, and that's it. And there's a beauty to that, right? Like it's like there's an excitement here. I'm seeing this with clothes. I'm seeing this with books. I literally we had this conversation with Chuck on the, on the first episode, and that worries me a lot, man. I think uh, what you're saying is absolutely right, and that's when. You know, I think that's a place where I've changed my opinion, too, is like when you keep oh, yeah. pushing efficient, efficiency to the max, you lose those things that make life interesting. Yeah. Right. And maybe like, you know, France, I'm half French, so I go back there a lot and I see like how certain areas of France are kind of held in a, a kind of stasis because, you know, people there, there's so many laws and so many social protections that certain systems that are wildly inefficient probably shouldn't exist anymore, still exist. But at the same time, there's like interesting ways of life and interesting village life and like uh, things that something we can't find. Yeah, it's something that is subsidized in a way. But maybe it's okay. Maybe certain things should be subsidized. Maybe that's okay because it makes life. You know, when you have the village restaurant that probably is not profitable anymore, but like it serves a role in the community. It's only open like six hours a day because you know people think only work thirty five hour work weeks and don't want to work you know all the time. And it refuses to serve pizza because pizza is not French or something like that. Even though pizza would make it a bunch of money. Right. It's like it's not our tradition. Right. It's not what my great-great-grandma used to make. You go there and you do taste like the unique character of that village. And right. This is like something that's unique and it's something that's deeply embedded in what this place has been in the past. Right. 
And there's there's a value to that, man. Like that's what makes the world interesting. I think in America we're seeing a resurgence of that. You know, like craft beers and like independent artisan, breweries opening up. Artisan yeah, artisan goods, coffee shops. Up. Like everybody's like, yeah. fuck the Starbucks. Like I can get that anywhere, obviously. And like yeah. there's there's a comfort to that. But at the same time, like, is my life interesting? Like if I find this little yeah. coffee shop that only I know yeah. and I can go tell my friends about it, that's inherently way more interesting to me than. Same thing. I'll take right. you to Starbucks. Number Everybody knows what fucking thing. Starbucks is. One in every city yeah. block, right? <clears throat> and that kind of ubiquity, I think there's going to be a rebellion against that. So I wouldn't worry about it because I think that it's inhumane in a sense. It takes away the human desire for creativity. And also like same with those marketing ads and stuff like that. Like I'm already, you know, becoming really skeptical of, of social media because I feel like it's trying to feed me what I want. Right. And that's not interesting. I get most interested when I meet people like... When me and you first became friends, you were somebody who was a lot more in the atheist spectrum. I was much more in the religious spectrum. But I've always found it interesting in my life to talk to people who disagree with me. Right. have very different opinions because the conversation is, frankly, it's a lot more interesting, right? Because yeah. I can go think of – I have another yeah, person who's yeah. echoing me that obviously feels likewise, good. I'm getting a pat yeah, on the likewise, back, pat yeah. on the back, pat on the back. That feels good, right? And we're cool with each other and, you know, it's like a circle jerk, you know, it's a crude term. But I, I actually found a diagram <laughs> from one of the long – hour-long debates we had you drew like the chain of like physics and math and god it was like this chain of creation i just found it actually but um yeah man i, I agree with you 100 yeah and, it makes uh, life interesting you know and uh the, there's something that's lost when trying to you try to create uniformity and trying to always uh you know make I, but i think fundamentally all this comes because the free market um there was a great way that w- it was put it was the, the free market is the best mechanism ever invented of solving problems on a mass scale. Yeah. The problem is it doesn't know which problems to solve. Mm-hmm. It's not inherently aligned with human values. If you incentivize X, it will find the best solution for X. Yeah. The problem that it ultimately comes back to is X something that is good for the soul, so to speak, right? Yeah, and what are, like you said, what are the secondary and tertiary effects of X? Like you may achieve X, right? but, but you what's lost in translation? Z. Yeah, like you might, you know, like we take going back to that case of the village, you might begin water to the woman right. in the most efficient way possible, but you just eliminated what's probably the highlight of their day every day, you know? I have this this paradox that I'm faced with, man. Like, I hate tourists, but inherently everywhere I go, I am the tourist. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to live in Rome if Rome wasn't Rome. <laughs> it's mean, such a beautiful spot, but, like, every time you go and you see these fucking crowds of selfie sticks, yeah. it just takes away from the magic, man. And it forces me personally to start traveling to offbeat cities that nobody would even fucking know yeah. except... You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it even forces you to explore other smaller, you know, lesser known. That, that is a good point, though, is that also will, you know, when you have, like, everybody wants to picture the Eiffel Tower, there's going to be people be like, you know, fuck right. that. I'm going to go to Prague, actually. Or, like, one of these, you know, post, uh, post-Soviet post countries that yeah. nobody's visited in the last 50 years. And I'm going to find a completely new thing that's interesting. Yeah, go to Bulgaria. Interesting. And that, I think Bulgaria slept on. That, that's a great, a great point that it will help kind of democratize tourism. There won't be just be, like, you know, certain tourist sites. But I think extending from that... People are also going to start uh, recalibrating, I think, in a lot of ways. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I think the, re- the recalibrations that come in the form that people are going to realize that, like, creating a kind of randomness you talked about with the bookstore, right? Right. That's going to be a desirable thing. And maybe it will even become a commodity, which, you know, unfortunately, the market always makes everything commodity. But that may not be such a bad thing as to realize that sometimes randomness and the ability to have, like, some kind of random experience just outside the grain is just uh, saying that... 
it, it makes me when mm. people become I become afraid of a future where everything is too too circumscribed. I kind of have yeah. that faith that humans are always going to desire that. I'll give you a great example, life. and I hate the fact that I'm repeating the same conversation I had with Chuck mm. on the last episode because mm. I think I went over this exact same instance. But <clears throat> there was a design studio based out of Turkey um, that had a really fascinating, you know, as a designer, I found this fascinating ex- uh, experiment, which was 3D printing. Mm. So if I design this this glass full of uh, vodka mm. as a 3D file, as a mesh, as an OBJ file, and I send you this file to your 3D printer and you print it, we're going to have two identical glasses, right? Mm. And the third person is going to have an identical glass. They have this algorithm that warps the mesh of the glass ever so slightly, just so it's imperfect. Mm. And every single print is a little bit different than she the next. Makes. So I think... It goes back to human ingenuity, right? I think there's going to be some really interesting and fascinating ways to turn the algorithms, maybe, or the tech back in the other direction. How do we bring back uniqueness? I mean, that experiment is brilliant to me. Like, yeah. that's something I'm, I found really fascinating and interesting. Like, I don't want to be able to um, to have the exact same thing as everybody else. I yeah. want my own twist to it. And imagine, like, your phone... Uh, before you print this glass, you look at the, your phone. It takes a picture of your face. And based on your facial features, it derives some sort of an algorithm that generates a random number that is fed into the algorithm to generate mm. a unique mug that is ex- is derived from your facial topology, right? Interesting. So shit like that is what I'm really into. It's like, how do we bring back the uniqueness? I think now we have more weapons than ever in, in that regard, right? Yeah. I think, you know, there's there's definitely plenty of mechanisms. But I think, you know, philosophically, what just has to come back to is that technology and the market have to be subordinate to humanity, humans, yeah. right? It can't be the other way around. I think that's sometimes we get caught up in the, this search for efficiency or search for progress is we make humans subordinate to, you know, what could be the most efficient or, or best way of doing something. We just need to always think about people, right? And let, mm-hmm. let it be people's decision to take it on, right? Yeah. Start at the individual level, then move up to the community level, and then at the higher level, like if you want to solve a problem, for example, let people try to solve it themselves first. Right. Let the community try to solve it. If both of them can't solve it, then maybe try putting it to the free market. Free market can't solve it, then maybe you need like a government Subsidy. or some kind of order, yeah, to solve it. Right. I think if you take a, that kind of approach, mm-hmm. then uh, you give people the leeway to figure out, you know, something that makes sense based on their context. You know, that's what, what scares you about ubiquity mm. is it removes the ability for people to have context and be individuals. And that's ultimately what we want. You know, that's what Western society is built on is the idea that individual thinkers, you know, obviously we believe in community too, but it's fundamentally the individual who's got to have that freedom and yeah. ability to be mm. himself. And I think that's why, you know, in our, our society, we're always going to have that rebellion against ubiquity. I think, you know, America, we, we pushed mainstreaming everything and efficiency a little bit far. And now yeah. we're having a return to this idea that, you know, like, or you said you like have an attraction to small towns, right? But small towns just economically aren't right. working anymore. But there's still this this fascination for a small town and a, you know close knit community and all that. Yeah. And I think that those hopefully that'll become a driving force for those things to come back into existence. Just the idea that people hmm. maybe it's not the most efficient thing, but just the way that people want to exist, you know. It, and that'll be acceptable because we've reached a level of material wealth where we can make some of these allowances, maybe, you know. We. As Americans have a lot to learn from Europe. 
I think Europe has a lot to learn from us, too. I mean, for sure, but on, <laughs> on this front, on this front, man, I think it's almost asymmetric. Well, there, it's man. an older society, and, you know, like we were talking about earlier Mars and all that, when you go and start a new country. This is the old world, and yeah. we're the new world, but there's a lot yeah. that we can learn, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend said something. He was like, man, you Europeans have perfected the art of living for the past 2,000 years or something, <laughs> like the siestas, the wine. There's a lot we can learn, I think, man. Uh Community here is uh, is shit, and I think a lot of this is uh, architectural. Mm-hmm. I think architecture is responsible for uh, the destruction of community. One thing that my upbringing was very different in Europe that, looking back, I really appreciate is we grew up in these blocks or mm-hmm. buildings, but we just call them blocks. <clears throat> and um, for whatever economic reasons, you know, this is past. This is. I was born before communism even collapsed. I'm technically born into communism. And, you know, um, this area, for example, you have a lot of military families. They're here for a year or two, then they bounce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day, that didn't happen. Your next-door neighbors are your next-door neighbors for 70 years, mm-hmm. right? Like, that. that's just how it was. That's how it was, yeah. And there were some beautiful moments because my building was 12 stories. I'm a man, Tony and Ivan, on the 12th floor, Committed on the 11th. All my boys were just like floor mm. by floor, and their families were permanently there. So I grew up with these kids since I was my first, literally my first memories, like two, three years old. I was friends with them. Like we've been friends for nearly 30 years, and um, we lived in architecturally like in the same space. So mm-hmm. during the winter when it's fucking freezing outside, I go out on my front door, hop on the elevator, hit the 10th floor, go to Tihumir's place. And we just kick it at his place. And then the next day, he does the opposite. And parents are close with parents. Families knew each other. We looked out. out. And it was like this architectural... The the architecture kind of enforced and incentivized community building. Mm. You go downstairs, and it's the same old babushkas watching people Mm -hmm. coming in and out, right? And they tell my dad, like, oh, I saw him leaving at 3 o'clock. He was with so-and-so. Like, you know, everything is known. They're like the, the security system and shit. And here, that, man, even in big cities, for some weird reason, I think maybe it's because people are so transient. Like, it's just you move in, you're six months, you're re-expire somebody else. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's, that's a factor. Maybe it's the suburban architecture is terrible at that. You know, I don't know any of my, my next-door neighbors. Like, I'm not cool with any of them, unfortunately. I mean, I've lived in the same house for, what, 10 years now? And uh, I barely know some of my neighbors. It's fucking weird to me, man. And it's, uh, it's not, it's sad, it's not man. good. It's not good, man. Because no, I grew it's not up healthy, and I yeah. miss the times when I was a part of this building. Mm-hmm. And like everybody knew me. Like to this day, man, like I'll go back and uh, some old lady will be like, oh, how's your dad? How's your Chris? Yeah. I'm like, I barely even recognize you, but like you, you remember me, right? Like that closeness. I just haven't encountered in the U.S. And, like, even talking to people, maybe some smaller villages mm-hmm. outside of the big metropolitan cities maybe have that. I think it's one of the tragedies. You know, when I, I, you know, I was in Malaysia for 10 months on a Fulbright. I lived in a small, you know, rural village in, in Kelantan, which is, you know, one of the less developed, kind of more traditional parts of Malaysia. And the kind of closeness there and, like, sense of, like, everybody knowing each other and everybody having a role in the community like, even when you're an old person, you know, like, I think one of the, the great tragedies that kind of uh, sums up what you've said here is just like an old person who's living in a retirement home who has nobody visit them. Yeah. No purpose. Yeah. Just amongst, you know, you know, especially once you reach a certain age, you can't really do much on your own anymore. 
And just like to, to end your life like that and just like have no community around you, you know, it's just something that I think is uniquely, uniquely American. You know, I went to Afghanistan mm-hmm. too. People there lack a lot of the material wealth we have here. Yeah. But like the kind of community they closeness. They make up for it in other words. Like there's like those old Soviet blocks in Afghanistan when I was there. We visited, I visited one of my uh, relatives there. And like in these old like Soviet blocks too, it's like, you know, they built these Soviet blocks that like they're the only uh, buildings with central heating, some of the only buildings with central heating in Afghanistan. So, you know, everybody lives in these close-knit apartments. And the sense of community there was incredible. Like you said, there's like old, That's old people who just like sit around and kind of watch the world go by and the kids come up to them and they'll like give kids money to go buy. So, it's you like know. extended, extended family. Yeah, like, it's, like I mean, a, it's like a whole village, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's like in the middle of a city, but like you have this like kind of yeah. village where like everybody knows everybody. That's, like, exa- that's really well put. That's you know? how I felt. I felt mm-hmm. like I grew up in a city, mm-hmm. but like in a village in the middle of the city. That's, yeah, that's and exactly they, you had that like experience. very strong sense of community <clears> and that's definitely having grown up in Fairfax and only known Fairfax, having traveled and seen that, that's something that I think architecture definitely plays into it, but yeah. not City knowing planning. neighbors, like right now, man, too, like my friends and stuff like that. Sometimes I feel like, you know, we have to drive everywhere and it's such a hassle kicking, yeah. just getting in traffic and we all have our lives going on. And like, imagine if we all just lived in like the same place and then you know, after work, we just kick it, you know, we just yeah. all walk out our door and say, Hey, what's up? You want to just go yeah. grab I mean, a game yeah. or like, you know, get on the grill, throw something on the grill. And it's just it doesn't, it's not aligned with the life here and the mm-hmm. life, the kind of lives we're going to have are most likely to buy single yeah. family homes too that are like 10, 20 minutes away from each other and then we're just yeah. going to come home, fucking, you know, pop on the TV, watch Netflix with just I mean, our wives. I mean, there's still like good parts about that too. Sure, no, for sure, for sure. I mean, we're it's just, just examining that specific community yeah. aspect. I mean, LA, mm-hmm. super sprawled out. So yeah. Terrible, right? Like it's yeah. terrible. Uh, New York, London, they have a very similar problem. Huh? You know, I have friends and family. You got to hop on the subway. I mean, it takes you 25, 35 minutes to go visit your friend. It is what it is, I guess. I don't know. No, I mean, times I feel like, you know, in this community, especially in Fairfax, like, we just, a lot of people just don't know each other, you know? Like, if you don't have another layer of, like, something to bind you socially. Social club Like, if you're, like, not part of a mosque, a church, or, like, you're, you know, here we have a big Hindu community, big Muslim community, big Christian community. Like, when I was going to school, like, I knew all these people who knew each other. I'm like, how the fuck do they all know each other? Right, because I then realized later, like they had some kind of you know institution they went to outside of that. Right, but if you grew up like me, like I was very close with like my family, but my family's always been spread out because you know, they came here as refugees. But I'd always be like, you know, like obviously I started playing sports later and that connected me to people. Yeah, and there's yeah. there are certain ways of social connection, but like growing up, just didn't have a lot of connections to a lot of people. Yeah, and I always just you know felt like oh that kind of sucks. Yeah, you know? yeah. You just like feel like you should know the people who live in your. I used to live in townhouses when I grew up. So that. I was in Comstock. That neighborhood was a lot more close knit. When I first moved yeah. to like the single family house, hated it. Yeah, man. Right. My brother had some friends in the neighborhood, so he was happy to be there, but just didn't know anybody. And frankly, it was hard yeah. to know people there. You know, so it was. It's just something of suburban life, especially, and I think urban life in America. But I also do think that a lot of it has to do with that, the transient nature of people, especially yeah. in cities. Like I have family in London. Like it's mm-hmm. the same shit, man. Like they don't know their neighbors like that. Yeah. Um, People I mean, come in, they live for a couple of years, you're in a career, you upgrade, you downgrade, you're out. And it's like this constant revolving Yeah, I mean, like, there's people, this right? understanding, too, like, the silent understanding we have that, like, we just don't get in each other's business that much because yeah, we know like, you're probably not going to be part of my life. Like, yeah, let's keep it's not, it like, separate. making somebody irrelevant, but just, like, okay, 
we exchange pleasantries, but like I know and you know, this is not going to go anywhere beyond that, right? right? So let's just leave it at that and not waste each other's time, right? It almost feels like that sometimes. Something you know? very German about that. Yeah, 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 exactly, right? <laughs> it's something that's also like utilitarian. You know yeah. enough about them, but it's like you kind of both know that this is not really going anywhere, you know? I don't know, maybe that's... I only have one one eye on what the overall situation here looks like. Maybe community here is stronger. I think I've been getting more integrated into I things. I don't think so, know? man, because I we talk to people. Yeah, It's not like we have a very small sample. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've met and I've talked to a lot of people in different cities and different countries. And yeah. It's just a tendency in the U.S. Like It's just almost like a very American thing to like your neighbors keep their little distance and you have your own little mm-hmm. bubble and that's what it is. You can live next to each other in an apartment or in a doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, being from the village, I come from in France, there the community was unbelievably tight-knit. Yeah, man. Then, you know, Afghanistan, when I saw Very Malaysia, close. I just see this kind of closeness that I've never... And I've been in these places long enough to feel like, you know, it's not just something I'm imagining, right? There no, is a sure. legitimate kind of closeness, especially in Malaysia being 10 months there. And, you know, Bulgaria, you're, you're confirming what I was saying. But I do sense yeah. that we have something that's been lost uh, sometimes. Yeah. Maybe that's the yeah. second order... <laughs> Of, of something else, man. I don't know yeah. if it's efficiency or something, but also as a culture, it makes it really difficult too because you have so, I mean, look, pros and cons to everything, right? There's so many cultures here, mm-hmm. right? If I have Indian neighbors mm-hmm. on one end and I have, I don't know, uh, I don't know what a, what other, what's an appropriate cultural reference, maybe somebody from Guatemala or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, the overlap culturally when it comes to holidays, when it comes mm. to way of eating, when it comes to everything, it's very different. And these homogenous societies like Bulgaria or Malaysia, it's like everybody likes the same food. Yeah. Everybody watches soccer. They're all on the we same page. All, yeah. And I think that 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 is like the missing lubricant here because it it makes it easier, man. You know, you it makes it easier to be friends with people you relate to. I guess that's my theory, right? Like. Well, you do definitely come in with common understandings, right? That you have that, that kind of lubricant, like, okay, he does the same kind of stuff he, I he, do. I want to say the the Super Bowl mm-hmm. serves that role for those that watch football. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. It's like this national event that brings everybody together. We don't even have that here, right? Like, yeah. um, New Year's, it's not mm-hmm. even celebrate. Like, my wife's side of the family, like, they don't celebrate. They celebrate Lunar New Year, which is like tomorrow mm-hmm. or something, right? Like, it's in mid-January. So yeah. we can't even agree on when to light fireworks, it makes it difficult, man. I'm not going to say it makes it difficult, but it's definitely, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a little obstacle. To I think for especially like first generation, there's much more of a tendency just to like keep with your own people. But for the next generation, like us, right. you know, we had the common experience of high school. And I guess I should have said that, like my best friends, right? So, you know, your Proximity. brother, yeah, Chris is Bulgarian descent. My other, you yeah. know, one of my best friends is El Salvadorian. Yeah. Another one of my best yeah. friends is Syrian, Right. So we all come from, you know, yeah. widely different cultures, yeah. but we have this this common connection of going through school together, playing sports together. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to build across. Now sure. I would say, you know, we're all on the same page about I have the you exact know, fundamental same. beliefs. Now, you know, you're married, you know, to somebody. I mean, my you, best friends are from yeah, Bangladesh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, mm-hmm. Mexico. Yeah. So amongst so, yeah. us second generation, you know, it's it's much easier to make those connections because we do have that that kind of shared social experience. Yeah. I think yeah, that's why you know when you create. But com- what I'm what I'm getting at is a bit different. Mm. If somebody next door moved mm. from Ghana or something, yeah. or some some country that I'm not, we don't have cultural overlap. It's not going to be an instant, fluid. 
connection, right? Because yeah. we don't have similar holidays, food, uh, what I cook might mm-hmm. not be in your, right? I mean, there's more to overcome, right? Muslims, it's, right? Yeah. Let's say Muslims, 4th yeah. of July for Muslims. Like, I mean, a lot of people, pork is a pepperoni pizza is about as American mm-hmm. as you can get. When your food offends their religion, religious preferences for, for dietary restrictions, I mean, that's a hurdle right there, right? So it's just... Pros and cons, but I definitely I think those factors play some sort of a significant role in this community building. It's not impossible, man. It's mm-hmm. just beautiful when it happens. I think it's just it takes a little bit more effort, maybe on both parties, right? Yeah, so, I think it takes more effort than people it, for some reason. I think are just not willing to. I think in places like Fairfax, we're building a new culture in a lot of ways. You know, Fairfax, you went here 50 yeah. years ago, too. Oh, yeah. It was like, you know, a bunch of small, you know, outlier sleeper neighborhoods surrounded by woods. Right. And now you have this multi-ethnic, incredibly diverse, prosperous, you know, area that's just a world away of what it once was probably 50 years ago. So it's, it's a work in progress. But here's the thing. Full circle. Mm. A lot of this is tied to... I said architecture earlier, but that's a synonym for physical spaces. Yeah. Um, when the coffee shop next door where I hang out at closes because of Starbucks or something, right? Uh, when Toys R Us closes, when Barnes and Noble knock on wood, when efficient, when Amazon starts taking out a lot of these social spaces. So in uh, in city design, there's uh, what's known as like. The first place is your home. The second place is your place of, of work. Mm-hmm. And there's this concept of the third place. The third mm-hmm. place is this social place. And a social place, the third place has these uh, unique characteristics. One, mm-hmm. it has to be free. Mm-hmm. You, can't, it, you can't pay to go there. Like, that does there, not yeah. make it a third place. Second is that it has to be accessible. Mm-hmm. There's another one which is kind of on the, on the fence, but is that it has regulars. Essentially, the third place is your home away from home. Mm. Here, we do not have that. Um, I remember like being in high school, man, coming from Bulgaria to here. The third place for high schoolers and teenagers, which is like probably one of the most important parts of your adolescence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is like these really formative years. It's the mall. Or the movie theater, yeah. right? I mean, these are tropes in American movies, yeah. right? Like, where do you hang on a Friday night at the movie? Th- the movie theater is not really meant to house these interactions. Then you go to Barcelona and you see these parks yeah. that go on forever that are just have little cuts and crevices and little pockets with benches where you can just crack a beer and just kick back. And then we have these malls, which are like these artificial environments where, I mean, let's face it, you know, you're not going to spend money, but... At some point, you just spend money, I guess. Like, it's, it's weird. Like, what do you do in a bunch of stores? You're hopping from the same stores weekend after weekend. And the physical spaces here are not really optimized for these third places. We don't have good third places. And mm-hmm. when we do, in the forms of parks, they're overly policed, I feel like. There's regulations. This park closes when it's dark out. And it's these really artificially fucking pathetic third spaces that are not real... Um, real environments for people to interact organically, you know? It's, yeah. Let's go to the mall and hang out. What the fuck is that? Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, us growing up, you know, we would be ducking and dodging around Fairfax City, and yeah, a lot of times uh, it was tough because you felt like, you know, if you got caught, you'd just get in a lot of trouble, right? You know? Yeah. And I'd say probably the biggest third place for all of us growing up that gave us our connections was school. 
And even that, you know, uh, there's some people saying we should, uh, you know, do more online learning and all school, that. School, honestly. Would you say school's the third place based uh, on your criteria? At times, mm. at lunch, maybe. But, but I guess there's not free interaction. Otherwise, I would categorize it as a second space. Like, a, mm. so you go to, to get work done. You, you're not free to, and unrestricted to hang out. You yeah. have tasks. You got the bell rings. You got to go there. So, at lunch, maybe it's a third place. Here's another another really interesting thing I picked up on with uh, some other friends who were in a different socioeconomic bracket than my family at the mm. time. Their third place was their house because mm. it was big as fuck. And we could go and hang out. Yeah. And a lot of the lower class kids didn't really have that option because you're in a one bedroom apartment, two bedroom apartment, you're, you're immigrants, you're new to the city, you can't. So there was also this other interesting distinction and you could feel the classism early on because mm. some people had entire basements. You know, one of my best friends back in the day, that was like one of the spots too. his house, man. It was always like, you know, mm. so that's something I picked up on as well. And I think the immigrants, if you're not, if you don't know anybody, it's, it's tough because you don't have that privilege. You can't yeah. have your friends over. Like it's two bedrooms. What do you mean over? Yeah. You know? So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's definitely something man, that well, I'm like identified. I remember when I was a kid, like the the townhouse I lived in, they had a community pool, right? And like that was something that you know the community paid for, and everybody could go hang out there, and that was huge. Like that's why I had a bunch of friends in that neighborhood. Yeah. We all went to the community pool, right? And that's that's I guess what you would say is the third place. And also around in the neighborhood, yeah. we had these open fields. There's like you know where that, that whole gas complex is near Fair City Mall, down the way. There's like all these huge gas tanks. Yeah. Yeah, like, so next to it, because, like, they have to have a buffer zone between that and the mall, they have these huge open fields. Oh, so we used to go in those fields and play football, you know, play whatever, because we had these, like, massive open fields next to our neighborhood. And that was, like, you know, some of the best memories of when I was a kid, mm -hmm. just having these free open spaces where me and neighborhood kids, you know, we didn't have to have anybody drive us to drop us off there. We could just go leave our houses, go, like, knock on other people's doors, get everybody out and go play in these fields or, you know, go to yeah. the pool. I think that's what you're talking about, you know, and I recognize like, you know, that's, that's a third, third space. But then when you go to other neighborhoods in Fairfax, there's nothing like that. Yeah, right? yeah. There's no free open field. Like you said, if it's a, it's a park, it closes at dark and it's, it might be policed or if it's, um, you know, I remember, yeah, we used to like go to Fairfax corners and there's, you know, the mall security who would, uh, you know, if they see a bunch of eighth graders running around, they're gonna be like, you know, what, what are these kids doing? They don't, they have a reputation to protect, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not a place that is meant right. to be a playground for eighth graders. Where else are we supposed to go? It's a commercial center. Don't get it twisted. Yeah, it's a commercial center. Money. Yeah. Yeah, and so you have. Like, I can see exactly what you mean. That that the architecture concept is when you do have these spaces that are just not meant for anything. You can kind of let people, you know, give a meaning to it themselves. But when you make everything that has a purpose, like I, I can see what you mean between the second space and third place. It's third space. Mm. It's like if everything has a purpose, then all of a sudden you lose that ability to just be creative mm. and loosen up yeah. there, right? Because <clears throat> that that that's kind of like the my American impression. And everything here, it's uh, I mean people people joke that the Germans are very organized, and that's what I feel here in like Northern Virginia. You know, it's like school is just everything is like okay, you go here, mm -hmm. everything is monitored, it's predetermined for you. Yeah, there's no sense of just like all right, well, it's fuck it, just do your thing and come back. First grade, when I was in Bulgaria, starting first grade, recess, you could leave the school. And we did. Like, we used to go play arcades and shit and, and play Street Fighter. Mm. No one's responsible for you. You're responsible for yourself. It doesn't matter that you're in first grade. Like, you just have to be back in, you know, 30 minutes or something, yeah. right? So that was like a sense of just 
a responsibility of, of autonomy. Mm-hmm. You're an autonomous person. You, you have rules to follow. You can, okay, can I go home? Can I eat? If I have enough time to run down and get a hot dog at that stand, I can come back. And I got that, you know, at an early age, first grade. Yeah. You know? And here I came late end of elementary school. And it's like, okay, you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. You can't leave the school, which I found really fucking strange. Like, what do you mean I can't leave the school? It felt like a jail. Mm. There's cameras everywhere, locks on the doors. Is this like micro helicopter, micromanagement, helicopter parenting, teaching style? Yeah. Very, very different cultural approach. But I guess the litigation threats here are more, way more severe. But Gary, nobody sues anybody for anything. Or that's how it used to be. Yeah, I mean, also our school had you know ridiculous policies like the zero mm. tolerance. You know, if, OD. That's what you know, we're yeah. One day you lost your temper and somebody got in a fight. Yeah. It just makes kids, you know, honestly, either super like I was somebody who was you know very by the rules, and my parents are pretty strict. So like. I just would not break rules, right? Yeah. I was very, uh, you know, risk adverse in that sense. But other kids, you know, I recognize now there's some people that, you know, just have the need to move and need to do stuff. And also, yeah, like, yeah. when you're growing up, like, just you times where you're immature, bit. too. You know, you just, you gotta you're trying freedom. to figure out the world. And you create an environment where if anybody takes a risk, they're viewed as damaged goods and just, you know, thrown to, like, a reformatory school. Yeah. That's just yeah. that's just damaging, right? I mean, that's, that's useless. The you common... The common thread, like, I think in the past 45 minutes or so, I feel like is this thread of this theme that's emerging Mm -hmm. that connects all these uh, subjects of second, I like the term of, like, second-order effects. Things Mm -hmm. that seem rational up front have unintended consequences. Like, oh, well, let's put our kids in a school that's monitored like a jail all the time and you know, kids are safe. We know where they are. Yeah, but there's other things that are lost. Like these kids are becoming extremely dependent on a schedule and, and structure and routine, and they can't handle having unstructured. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like there's other things, man. Whether it's the bookshop uh, being out competed by Amazon for the, in, the, in the name of efficiency. Mm-hmm. There's things that on the surface make sense. Yeah. But then you look a bit further, and I feel like that's one of the things to tie back to. Uh, like the intellectual growth, I feel like is just being aware of more facets now, and I guess maybe that's wisdom or something. But no, I think that's exactly what what you said. I think that ties it together nicely. Is that uh, just understanding that when you make a decision, there's all these effects you can't anticipate. When other people mm-hmm. make big decisions, they may act like they have all the answers. Yeah. But there's all these effects that they can't. I don't think anybody will ever be able to fully, you know, account for. Yeah, man, and like, I guess on to wrap up on the, on the last point uh, is something that um, I can't remember when this view formed, mm. but one of the lessons or one of the perspectives I gained, maybe just kind of emerged out of all the other views I've had, mm. is kind of like a sense-making approach to the world, economics, entertainment, um, technology, and it it took me a while to realize this, but humans live by narratives and what I mean by that is that logic is one narrative Uh Um, science is a narrative if you have a bunch of dots on a piece of paper narratives is simply how the story you tell of how you connect them to achieve you know to explain something away and I know it sounds really abstract because I'm still kind of struggling and articulating it, but I've realized like money 
for example, that's a narrative. Mm-hmm. That's not a real thing. That's an abstraction we all collectively tell ourselves. We convince each other that it's worth believing. We all collectively believe it. Mm-hmm. And we proceed as if it's a real thing. A dollar is a piece of paper that has some shit drawn on it. Um, it doesn't have any value mm-hmm. in the physical world. Right? I mean, you're an economist. You know, I don't mean to sound condescending at all. But no, definitely. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm beating a dead horse. But it has value because we collectively choose to believe the narrative that it has value. And we explain it in a way in abstraction. And at any given moment, there are competing narratives. And the things that went out. Sometimes it's just the people that can tell the best story about something. It's not that they're more accurate than you. It's not that they're more scientific. They know more than you. They went to better, better schools. Sometimes going to a better school is part of the narrative yeah. right, that sells it in the first place. Yeah. And it just it took me a while just to realize, man, that this world is just a bunch of narratives. Humanity is just civilization. It's just a bunch of narratives we tell ourselves. And there's people, organizations, and Companies that are really good at architecting narratives. Yeah. Another thing along those lines, uh, kind of going in the other direction, is I lost a ton of hope in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. So, two three years ago, I did this project, uh, this concept. You know, I design these these uh, speculative concepts all the time, and one of them is the Google Scholar one, which mm-hmm. is how do you know an, a scientific article is true or not, right? So I designed this little extension for your browser mm-hmm. that runs it against a database and says, hey, this article, it was uh, proven, it was retracted from mm-hmm. the Journal of Science or something, so take it with a grain of salt. In the process of researching that, that project, man, I, I found some things that completely shook my confidence in the scientific institution, not the scientific process, right? I'm not saying science is wrong, but... Um, nature is probably the most, if, if not the most, one of the most acclaimed and accredited publications in science mm-hmm. in that world. There was an ex-director, ex-vice president or something of the sort who once joked that the way we determine which studies get published is we, stay on the top, we stand on top of the staircase with a stack of them, we throw <laughs> them down, and whichever one gets to the bottom, oh, we throw man. it. And uh, politics are everywhere. That. Politics are everywhere. Every time you have two humans interacting, politics are at play. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, we love to believe this narrative that the scientific world is objective and everything is peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. But when you look into it, man, the whole shit is rotten. Um, peer review is bullshit. Uh, you have all these actors that are acting in self-interest, right? Yeah. Um, one part that people often forget is that when you put out a study... Uh, in theory, it should be peer-reviewed, right? Yeah. But when you look at the economics, the gain theory of it all is in order for you to peer-review my article, you're going to spend two months replicating my experiment. Those are two months that you're not investing in your own career, your own creating career. your own original mm-hmm. work. That's going to advance you. So nobody wants to really peer-review. Like, you're not incentivized yeah, to peer-review, Nobody peer wants review, to be right? that guy, yeah. And there's all, I mean, just layers upon layers, man. There's, I mean, you could probably Google and look deeper for yourself, but mm-hmm. I lost a lot of credibility, especially there was this crisis in psychology. Mm-hmm. They found out something like over half of all psychology studies could not be replicated. They actually got a team of people to try to, to replicate it, could not. So even science, right? Even something as objective as science, medicine, 
take it with a grain of salt, man. Yeah. I think it goes back nicely to what you were saying. If anybody's telling you they got all the answers, they're full of shit. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's that's probably that's, I'm gonna leave it at that. But the narrative thing really stuck with me, man. We we believe stories. Yeah, I think anybody, like you said, that that's a great way to sum it up. Everybody's got their story, and people have good reasons for their story. But in the end, you should always be, you always be skeptical and always question. Ask the questions. You know, all comes down to that Socratic method. Yeah. Just keep asking questions about it because you're gonna figure out hopefully enough that you can make a balanced decision on it. Yeah, and and actually one of the the points, uh, one of the pillars of that belief stemmed from a conversation you and I had about wealth. I don't mm-hmm. know if you recall, it was like maybe last year. We really deep dove into wealth. Mm. Like, what what is wealth, right? Like, yeah. how can wealth grow? It's not a real thing, but we talk about it all the time. And at the end of the day, that's also a story we tell. It's it's just this pie that's ever growing, and mm-hmm. you know, you generate wealth. But how can you generate wealth? It's like this abstract, renewable resource. It seems right mm. that. I don't know. Well, you can, you know, always accumulate more material things, right? So you can say that's that's wealth is having more material things, more things available to you, more services, more goods. That's that's a way to quantify wealth, right? But in the inf- information age, there are tricky. Yeah, there's also wealth. intangibles to wealth. That's like, what I was getting at. You know, like, like if you have a community, like we you know we were talking about before, where you lived next to all your neighbors and you like you know had the high school team you rooted for, and that community gets gets gutted. That's a kind of wealth that's intangible, right? The wealth right. of that, that good feeling that comes from that close community and, you know, feeling like these are my people and these are, you know, this is where I, I live. I see what you're getting at, yeah. Yeah, so wealth is, wealth, like you said, it's a narrative. Is what's the narrative I tell myself about wealth. You know, there's people who are poor who feel like they're wealthy. There's yeah. people who are rich, who are rich, who, feel, who are miserable, you know. So material accumulation, I think, is not wealth, definitely. I think, like you said, it's, it comes down to narratives. Is yeah. what, what do you and tell yourself about what you have, you know? And I've seen services, and which is really inspiring. People coming up with services to provide and to, to offer to other businesses that are, I don't want to say bullshit, but just don't seem that valuable. And at the end of the day, you ask yourself, like, how, how can I create a company that's, that's generating money? And the, the answer is you just have to convince people that it's worth X amount of dollars. Like, it doesn't have to be worth that much. Yeah. You just literally have to convince them. Like if you took a bunch of sacred crystals from Egypt mm-hmm. and you knocked on somebody's office and you said, hey, for $1,200, I'm going to go and, and spread good luck through your office carpets. If you can convince the owner that that, is, that narrative is believable, yeah. you got a business. Yeah. And um, that's kind of inspiring, man, that, you know, you, the entrepreneurial side of me is inspired by the fucking endless possibilities. It kind of liberated me and gave me this confidence when I realized, like, dude, everybody else is, like, bullshitting more or less to, you know, to some degree. That mm. if you could sell something with a story, then that, that's, that's what justifies its value, not its inherent value, right? The best people for a job aren't always the best. They just sell themselves the best. Yeah. I mean, my counterpoint to that would be that's why I believe strongly in institution building is so that we can do that and we should you know create things and you know that's what life is all about you know doing yeah. something right yeah. but that we have a set of morals and ethics that guide it right we don't want people selling snake oil telling somebody you know if you drink this you'll live forever and getting no, hundreds yeah, of thousands that's, of dollars from them because you can you know deliver the narrative and there's some people who are very charismatic convincing at it 
But for me, it's what's important is, you know, you take away the ability for narratives to run away with themselves and hurt people. Right? I think what you just described is a beautiful example mm-hmm. of my theory is that there's people that crafted a narrative that is illogical, not scientific, yeah. yet they found people to, you know, to believe and subscribe to it, mm-hmm. monetarily wise in some cases. Yeah. And that, that's, that just shows you that it's not about science, it's not about logic and economics, sometimes it's about emotions and narratives. Yeah, and we want people to enjoy narrative. I mean, yeah, if you, if you do view life like that, there's a lot of narratives that, you know, are just the way people want to live and that's that and that's fine. But we should try to build society that if we have that recognition that the marketing of something is super important, we have to make sure, especially as there's more available and there's more people, like you said, micro-influencers and all these people telling different stories, that it's done in a way that's ethical and ensures that we don't yeah. you know, shoot ourselves in the foot while doing it. That, that's know? a layer on top. But the word yeah. you just use is marketing. And marketing, yeah. professionally speaking, as somebody you know, who works in startups mm-hmm. and, and companies, marketing a lot of times is intangible. Mm-hmm. Meaning, I mean, you could quantify your results, but essentially you're convincing somebody that I'm going to do a bunch of things for you and I can't promise you they're going to directly and obviously help your company sell a product, but you somehow believe that they must help. So it justifies Mm -hmm. my salary, right? Marketing, I think, is a really good example of that because not every single single thing is quantifiable. For example, I'm giving you a thousand you... Instagram eyes laid mm-hmm. on your posts. How valuable is that? I mean, maybe some of them convert, but maybe it's not because of my efforts, right? It's this intangible, indirect consequence, which we all generally agree is a, a desirable thing. And that's a position and we're, that's paid and you can actually work mm-hmm. in marketing to, in, in certain, you know, certain areas are definitely quantifiable, certain are more questionable. And I, and I see it, you know, it's, Certain professions are not directly, obviously um, contributing to the wealth or the well-being of a company, but they're there anyways. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, definitely. It makes sense. And like you said, that's yeah. that sometimes will help sustain certain things that they're, you're able to tell the right story about it, right? Yeah. That it's, and that's in itself, you know, useful in a way. Uh, I've seen people thrive. Um, I've been in situations where, uh, I mean, this is more going to the literal side of narratives, but <clears throat> I've seen companies being sold for a billion dollars mm-hmm. and having the no technical verification by independent third parties that their claims are true. Actually, work. <laughs> contrary, there's been a lot of cases where, you know, without naming companies, but where it's been proven they're bullshitting. Yeah. But for some weird reason, customers believe it. I mean, it's not illegal, right? It's like stretching the truth and, yeah. and bending narratives. But... It, oh, there's unbelievable. I mean, it's becoming a whole genre. I don't know if you've heard some of these podcasts about fraudsters. We're not necessarily fully fraudsters, but people who... Uh, what's what's that company led by Elizabeth Holmes? Uh, oh, the Tyranno. Uh, yeah, Theranos. Theranos is a great example of where, you know... Say less. Yeah. I mean, right there. Yep. Yeah. That's Dude, that, that is the best example of a narrative yeah. in play. Here's a company with a product that the professionals, the scientists are telling you this is not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Kissinger and some of the most respectable members of our society are throwing money at something that is seemingly yeah. impossible. Yeah. You have Walgreens, a highly respected corporation doing buying it. it. You didn't only convince... 
you know, you convince just such a range of people by spreading yeah. this narrative. Powerful people, smart people, rational people. Yeah. And just with the right narrative, you got them all on board, you know, and uh, that should give pause to anybody who thinks that, you know, just because somebody's got a bunch of titles or experience that they're, you know, any more qualified to make a decision. I mean, I don't want to take away, you know, the role of experts. No, but your general, you know? your general sentiment holds true. Like if yeah. I came to you and I was like, hey, Mason, I got a crazy investment opportunity. Yeah. Some of the investors are Henry Kissinger. Yeah. And then the other general. I'd be like, oh, shit. And uh, <laughs> the, the CEO is from Stanford. Yeah. And you know who's on the board of advisors? Another professor from Stanford. Yeah. I mean, how, how, yeah. how can you... That's such a powerful story. Yeah. How do you turn that down? You can't. No normal, no reasonable person like yeah, some some's fishy. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, that that's actually like that's probably the best example to leave it at, right? Like narratives are everything, man. And, and it took me a long time, and um, it's a double-edged sword because it scares me because I see the potential to be misused. Yeah, malicious malicious narratives are fucking dangerous. But at the same time, it kind of gives me. I don't know, it kind of gives me confidence in, in trying new ideas and trying to monetize products and, and launch startups or sell my own services. And um, there's a company, man, that I remember it's a sci-fi company that if you pay them, and I'm sure it's a fat ass fee, a consulting fee, they will create a comic book and it reimagine your company in a sci-fi world based on reality, like as in some visionary shit, right? I was like, holy shit. But the two main people were like, you know, some some big leaders in the in the game, and it just opened my eyes, man. Like, damn, if you have a good story, you can make a living doing anything, man. I I can't argue. Yeah, yeah, I can't argue that uh, storytellers they're everywhere. Like, we can go into so many different examples across every industry, across every human endeavor, and <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> Be your tongue stories all night, you know. But, uh, <laughs> Hey, it's been a pleasure, man. Until next time. Cheers.